I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Welcome to my wonderful and strange uh, Twin Peaks log house. Oh. I'm Khalil, and uh, with me today is the snakeskin jacket to my individuality and belief in personal freedom. Oh, that sounds like some sort of delicious toasted PB&J right inside my ear holes. Uh, uh-huh. I think uh-huh. you mean a uh-huh. uh, peanut butter banana sandwich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's like the king mm-hmm. used to eat. Like the king. And I, too, am the king. Yeah, here say. ye, here and ye. I, I'm the Unplugged Professor, presented to you right now. Thank you, thank you. We are talking about Wild at Heart, the 1990 David Lynch film. This is Lynch film number something in our journey through the Lynch films. I used to imagine you'd actually keep count, like I actually have, keeping track. I have not. <laughs> You're I'm, the one with the list guiding I, us. Yeah. This, this makes me fear in the general direction we're going. We could be ending up lost in the David Lynch catalog, never to return to the return. We'll be along the lost highway very soon, my friend. Very soon. <laughs> Content warnings for this one. Uh, This has a lot of sex in it. Just Mm -hmm. a lot of it. The vast majority of it is consensual. However, there are some points in which we'll be talking about scenes involving sexual assault. We are not going to use the R word, but there is definitely going to be that. So if that is something you do not want to listen to, I would not listen to this pod and I would avoid the movie. There's also in the movie indications of incest and a lot of graphic violence. We're not going to do graphic violence in the pod, but we will talk about it. So just heads up. We, it, we have at least, like, one to five hours with a pod, usually. So there's opportunity here. One to, to five. Do what not, a ratio. Do not keep away the, op, like, the potential from the listener, you know? Spoilers for Wild at Heart and any earlier David Lynch project, including Twin Peaks. Ahoy! Oh, on the Twin Peaks logcast. Gods forbid. Sources today include Wikipedia, IMDb, and Mental Floss. Mm, I also delicious. checked out the special features on the Lime Green box set edition, which is what we're going to be using today in our viewings. Oh, yeah. I had a Lime Green box, too. as Final Fantasy thirteen. Yes. <laughs> I, pu- I I didn't have another case, so I just <laughs> took Final Fantasy. Was it thirteen two? right? Thirteen two. probably. I took thirteen two out, a game I've never played, never will, and put in <laughs> this movie for him so it, he could it, borrow it on his road trip. It was ex- it was great to have that opportunity of confusion for myself. Which, by the way, Khalil, I got to mention, like, mm. in, in this day, the day in the year of 2022, in the month of January, when Currently, we were recording the pod. As of recording. We could not find this movie anywhere yeah. on the internet. It like, was not streaming. For, for the most part, like, we could at least, like, find a place to purchase it digitally if, like, push came to shove or something. But no, nothing. Nada. Yeah, Only physically. A lot of Lynch's films at this point are on the Criterion Collection, which is how we've watched a lot of them. Is either I have a Criterion Blu-ray or it's on the channel. Mm-hmm. This is one of the weird cases where it's not been preserved that much. It is a little more available than Inland Empire, which is really hard to get a hold of sometimes. Uh, that one is almost like out of print, basically. But at least this one, you can acquire DVDs of it. It's just currently not on streaming. Yeah, for, for something being wild at heart, it's fe- it feels like it's being almost like kept away. Like, Can't keep away kept- me from my love, Peanut. <laughs> uh, again, speaking of those uh, special features, I watched them. They are good. I, I like the special features. Good. I didn't incorporate them much into my research here or into our pod. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna gonna leave that as a little breadcrumb trail for the listener to follow. I said breadcrumb. I don't know if I pronounced the R enough, so I'm just gonna clarify it's a breadcrumb trail. Oh yes, instead of the 
bed cumb. Yeah, I, I don't want to think about that too much. <laughs> but I do want to think about Wild at Heart. I want to hear, Professor, your overall thoughts. First time viewing, and then you did a second time viewing. Yes. What did you think of Wild at Heart? This is my second favorite David Lynch film. Mm. Yes. Firewalk with me being the first, but no. Out of all of the films, it, it's like it still takes a lot of like Lynch inspired things and it actually kind of like turns it up at various moments, but it has a lot of fun with it. There is a lot of fun throughout this film, and a lot of that can be heavily set onto some of the overall choices made as well as the push on the performances. Like, there's so much energy coming out of Nick Cage. There's so much more I'm getting out of the characters, such as Nick Cage's sailor, as well as... Laura Dern? Laura Dern, thank you. Laura Dern's Peanut. They That's are, not her name is not Peanut. They keep saying Lulu. in the film. Lula. Lula. It's, it's a Peanut in the film, but regardless, they are so much fun. And when coming out of Blue Velvet, in which it continued on the Lynch standard of guy stands in corner until he's moved to a new set piece, mm -hmm. these characters feel like characters, and I love that. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I find your enthusiasm to be a lot, and I guess, yeah. like, I don't have that strong of an opinion on Wild at Heart. It's it's one of those films that I was looking forward to rewatching because I watched it once years ago, thought it was, like, good, slightly good, mm -hmm. and then just kind of, like, sat on it, and now I'm revisiting it, and I feel pretty much the same way. I guess I just have more evidence <laughs> behind my opinion, but this is a solid, no. like, 6 out of 10 for me. Um, I do like the movie. Yes. Um, I just think that by David Lynch standards and by Nicolas Cage standards, there's movies I like more by those two creators, two I th artists. I think that for some reason I like when people take Wizard of Oz and do fun things with Wizard of Oz as opposed to Wizard of Oz itself. Mm -hmm. Still enjoy Wizard of Oz, but I think I put on things like Six String Samurai and Wild at Heart a bit higher, if you will. And, 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 and Wild at Heart listeners... at the moment, if we take your numerical standards... At, at this place, I'd put it around the 8 out of 10 area okay. myself. Okay. And listeners, if you're wondering, Six String Samurai is a movie that the professors roped me into watching before. It's like your favorite movie, it I think, right? It is my right? favorite film. Yeah. If you want the best one-liners in all of the movies you've ever seen, I promise you, you're going to have a good time. You got a nice tuxedo. Nice tuxedo to die in. <laughs> I think there's a similar energy in Wild at Heart. In, there is. In terms of the... The ridiculousness. Like, yes. you, you can't take this seriously. And I guess one difference between Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart would be that Blue Velvet is a movie that's become, over time, like, critically cherished as, like, artistically really good. Like, people love this thing as a work of art. Whereas yes. Wild at Heart, I think its appeal rests more in its campiness, its silliness, and its extremities. So I think that they are appealing to slowly different audiences enough that I, I understand why there's a split in opinions among people between the two. Well, they'll be going deeper into it, but I think that's overall, like my split comes into how much more dynamic I feel like this area is. We have a character uh -huh. who actively suffers consequences for his actions, though well-intentioned they are. Uh -huh. We have scenes in which are at times will throw you into a sense of atmosphere with things such as varieties of music from mm -hmm. live musicians and so on. That's just so delightful and it mm. makes it like feel like a whole new place. Meanwhile, like it seems like I'm in a pocket. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but I feel like I'm in a specific pocket 
with Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. and I feel free. Well, with and you Wild know, we're Heart. comparing it to Blue Velvet. This also was the film right before Fire Walk with Me, which, yes. as you noted, you really liked Fire Walk with Me. Oh yes, it's it's interesting. This movie is nothing. Like, it's so different from those two. It is that even though Lynch reuses a lot of the same assets, we'll say. Right, he's pulling from the same pool of assets and mm-hmm. like ideas, and a lot of times actors. Yes, tonally, yes. these are very different tones. Mm-hmm. So again, speaking of the idea of reusing actors, um, this movie has a lot of actors from Twin Peaks that what? you may have recognized. What? So in no this particular is not order. Being surprising. Yeah. Every Lynch film we've gone into. This so one's far. more. This one's more. Yeah. Yes, admittedly, but I also expect that as we get closer to Twin Peaks. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if you noticed all these. So that no particular order. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn, the actor for Audrey, mm-hmm. plays the young woman in the car accident. Yes. Right. Uh, Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura Palmer, shows up as Glinda the Good Witch at the end. Yep, that's completely obvious scene, which everyone knew that was exactly who it was. I had to explain to the professor off pod that this was Laura Palmer. Who who do you trust, though, listener? Who do you really trust? Grace Zabriskie uh, plays Juana, and she's normally Sarah Palmer. Mm. Right? You recognize her? Yeah. Laura's mom? Mm-hmm. Leland's wife? Yep. Every time I recognized did, every Did you not person. recognize the actor? And every time. Uh, I, I, I will pretend I did. Pretend you did. That's very interesting. Uh, <laughs> David Patrick Kelly, who plays Jerry Horn. I know you recognized him because you yes. mentioned off pod yes. that. Jack Nance making his usual appearance. Mm-hmm. I did recognize Jack Nance. That one. He plays Pete in Twin Peaks. Talking about his dog. And then Francis Bay, who plays Mrs. Tremond or Mrs. Chalfont. She makes a brief appearance as a very minor character. Yes. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton is in this, and he would later go on to be in Fire Walk with Me two years later, mm-hmm. which associates with Twin Peaks. So, all in all, a lot of Twin Peaks and then later Fire Walk with Me actors in this film. And, of course, that makes sense because this was around the same time that he had been wrapping up the pilot for Twin Peaks. He had been working on season one. He was working on Industrial Symphony at this time. Uh, Kind of an interesting time frame for Lynch. Around this point, he was trying to resurrect the From the Ashes, Ronnie Rocket, and One Saliva Bubble, two projects that, unfortunately, didn't come to fruition. Yes. At least a time of recording. Um, both of which were involved in a contractual complication. So the company that they've been working through to produce these films, uh, Dino De Laurentiis, had filed for bankruptcy. So Mm. the films are kind of caught in this weird limbo state. And, you know, who's to say if the company hadn't filed for bankruptcy, would we have gotten those films? Maybe. Would we have gotten Wild at Heart? Maybe. Who's to say? We could have one saliva bubble on our list at this very moment. We really could have. Maybe we Mm. wouldn't have been born, though. Mm. I don't know. Butterfly that, effects. That's that amazing butterfly effect. Listener might not have been born. Or Listen. they might be older than us, and they were already born. Listener, I, I, I'm very thankful that you're in this timeline with us right now. So David Lynch was approached by independent production company Propaganda Films to originally make a noir film based on a 1940s crime novel. I wasn't seeing the name of this novel pop up in my research, so I don't know if it's like publicly said what novel it was going to be. But obviously it didn't happen. It did not. Lynch's friend and associate producer on Twin Peaks, Monty Montgomery, showed him a manuscript for a book that was about to be published called Wild at Heart, The Story of Sailor and Luna. Now, originally, Monty Montgomery had wanted to direct the adaptation himself. He had acquired this manuscript. He was going to go to David Lynch to be an executive producer. And he was showing him the book to tell him, like, hey, do you want to produce this? And Lynch remembers telling him, that's great, Monty, but what if I read it and fall in love with it and want to do it myself? 
And Monty Montgomery was so confident that David Lynch wouldn't really like this book that much, you know, that he was like, it's fine. It's not really that big of a deal. And then David Lynch read it and decided to direct it himself. Monty Montgomery's one of the producers. I feel like there's just... That's a wild Uno reverse. Yeah, it really but, is. But I it mean, does Lynch track, did, like, from our interviews, yeah. like, uh, beforehand, like, when they're talking about Lynch mm -hmm. and just the way that he behaves, this is a logical conclusion that we, sh like, he should have been more cautious and on. And Lynch did warn him. Like, he tried to give a heads up. <laughs> Lynch said, quote, It was just exactly the right thing at the right time. The book and the violence in America merged in my mind, and many things happened. Lynch saw the film and book as a really modern romance in a violent world, a picture mm. about finding love in hell. And he was <laughs> attached to a certain amount of fear in the picture, as well as things to dream about. So it seems truthful in some way. And propaganda films decided to let him switch projects. <laughs> I'm glad that he could go by his own propaganda. Now, initial... Early screen testings for Wild at Heart had a pretty poor reception. Mm. Lynch estimates uh, upon memory that about 300 people walked out of early screenings. Um, out of? Yeah. No, no, out of. Out of. Out of The how screenings. Many? No, oh, I don't know how many. Out of, I, I, I don't have those numbers. Of individuals. I don't have those numbers. <laughs> All 300 out of 250 walked out. People literally went in just to be insulted and walked out. It was enough that it was noticeable as a walkout experience. You know, it was he uncommonly high. And Lynch is not someone who's not used to walkouts in his career. He's had <laughs> films people walk out of before. I mean, like, he hasn't had that much luck with, like, film at this point, like, between this as well as Fire yeah, Walk Blue Velvet people liked. Blue Velvet, good job. You did it, <laughs> Good Lynch. job. You did it. On release, the film had mixed critical reviews, was a moderate success at the box office, grossed $14 million above a $10 million budget. So again, moderate success, not enough to like win him a fortune, but it it, it broke even. You know, it made yeah. enough. Um, the film, the biggest acclaim it got is that it won the Palm d'Or at the 1990 Cannes Film Festival, which is like, you know, the big award. <laughs> Which is crazy because, again, other critics were pretty lukewarm on it. Yes. And so this was a pretty controversial decision at the time that they gave this to Lynch. Um, yeah, people just generally were like, what are you doing over there at Cannes? Why are you giving this Palm d'Or award to this film? <laughs> so, and, and as far as this film, it's kind of a hard one to label. What would you call this genre? Like, if you were to tell someone in one sentence what kind of movie Wild at Heart is without describing the plot, what kind of movie is it? What's that music genre that kind of like goes No, 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 too much energy, too much energy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. Uh, give me a hint. It's like the era of Elvis, but with high intensity. I've only heard like the slow songs with Elvis. Uh -huh. So I'm thinking about upbeat Elvis. I mean, rock and roll. Rock and roll. Yes, that one. <laughs> That's what's, okay. Sorry, the I thought it was a much more specific thing you were looking for. Rock and roll, yeah. That's Elvis is the king of rock. Yes, I would call this rock and roll. Okay, it's a rock and roll film. You so mm -hmm. you've argued sometimes that some genre labels are very silly, but you're about to tell me a normal way of describing a movie. Oh, it's a rock and roll film. It's not a normal way, but it is a way to describe okay. this film. Okay. Uh, so Wikipedia, your competitor, your rival <laughs> My in life. rival. Agreed with me completely. They said it is an American black comedy romantic crime film. You see, 
Those like, are correct I, I, terms. I, they are correct terms. It's just a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I get lost halfway it, through it, it and a, I wonder where I'm at. It, at it the is. End it of is this. American. <laughs> it is American. I I agree. It's American. Yes. It feels very American. Yes. You know. <laughs> it's 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 a black comedy, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. I'm not arguing it's, against these terms. These are correct terms. It's it's romantic. It's crime. When it's you film. string them together mm-hmm. so quickly, though, yeah, it is just wild. You know, at heart, almost. You know who else thought that the movie was kind of wild? The mm. Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, who do the movie ratings. Mm. So at the time, NC-17 wasn't a rating yet. Yes. So this was about to receive an X rating. Like, you know, which basically means, like, you're going to have extremely limited amounts of release you can really do with it at an extra Or likely the blood and the sex. Yeah. So Lynch was contractually obligated by propaganda to release an R-rated film. So as far as changes to the movie, it's not like there's a whole giant chunk cut. As far as I know, this isn't like Blue Velvet that has, like, a whole extra hour of missing pieces and features. And, like, Fire Walk with me has, like, a bunch of missing pieces. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, that's not the case. Uh, he did make some changes, though. He... Change the scene where a character shoots his own head off with a shotgun, which I'm assuming is going to be Bobby Peru, based on him doing that. Narrow to make it down less, the characters. To yeah. make it less graphic. And then uh, gun smoke was added, which apparently helped the rating. Yes. Add the smoke. Yep. And they also the- toned down the blood, and they hid the removal of a character's head from a body. The rating system has always been wild. There's yeah. not, wild at like, heart, one could say. It is there's been like very few bits of consistency, and it is it, it's it's entertaining when you just kind of go across the list on just like yeah. how these are classified. You know, like at the very least, I'm thankful for like something at the the R end, just because, say for example, there will be people who might not want to check out something that's more intense of a filming mm. out there. Um, every other rating though, I don't really care about, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that the ratings are inconsistent, mm-hmm. but entertaining mm-hmm. such is a way one could describe Nicholas Cage's career mm. inconsistent, Wh- but entertaining. What? Go- now I am, I don't know if there's a fan for like Nicholas Cage. Is there a term for Nicholas Cage fans? Like a cage head or like a caged elephant or something like, is there a term for this? I think it's just human. Human. Just someone with artistic <laughs> sense. No. And a beating heart. No, I um, I, I have a lot of respect for Nicolas Cage, and I really hope that he never does anything bad to make me change that. <laughs> I, I don't want to look back on this pod and go, oh, no, I said that about Nicolas Cage. At the time of recording, I have nothing but respect for Nicolas Cage. Like, Nicolas Cage comes up from time to time for, like, even, like, movie considerations of what we would both watch. And I, I guess the thing with Nicolas Cage is that he has this reputation at this point, whether he is in like indie art masterpieces like or he's Willy's in Wonderland? total schlock, right? Total just like Willy's Wonderland. Like Willy's Wonderland. <laughs> he, he puts his hundred percent in. Yes. And uh, he's, he's the kind of actor where he's not really trying to play a lot of times the most down to earth, realistic portrayal. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even call it usually subtle, although he can do subtlety. He can. Um, Joe is a movie I oftentimes tell people to watch if they're interested in a more subtle cage performance. But yeah, a lot of his performances are very out there. So I think he's a good casting for Wild at Heart. I yes. think he was a really good casting for the character of Sailor Ripley. Heavily so. Like, honestly, I, I've said this before. David Lynch doesn't really have a big track record on, like, characters that do stuff. Yeah. And if, like, they somehow put D- Cage into something that he wouldn't be able to do stuff, I don't know how... That would go. Like he, you don't he, want to cage the cage. You don't want to cage the cage. Right. 
And uh, so apparently Nicolas Cage claims that this movie, Wild at Heart, was a big part of what helped him get away from method acting and become more spontaneous. So he has said that David Lynch's approach to filmmaking, being more spontaneous with rewrites and kind of on-the-fly decisions, Mm -hmm. um, and the film's odd characters as well, you've mentioned they're very eccentric, Mm -hmm. helped him become more playful with his craft, which I'm inclined to believe is, is at least partly true. I don't know enough about the chronology of Nicolas Cage's films to like say for a fact this is the weirdest thing he'd done up to this point I would need to look at when Vampire's Kiss came out because that was pretty out there too but I think he was at this turning point in his career where he was early enough in where he could still very easily slide his way through a new path which led him to do things like Face Off later which we both love universally yeah I enjoy Face Off you feel yes. about Face Off about as much as I feel about Wild at Heart. Yes, that I, is a I, correct statement. Which is a wrong feeling, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Face Off. Is, I agree. It is a wrong feeling, Khalil. <laughs> Face Off is better than Wild at Heart. I'm saying this on the David Lynch podcast we're doing. Neat. Una reverse card on you, but. <laughs> um, also, apparently, the snakeskin jacket. Of legend, of what? lore. I feel like if you equip this in an RPG, it would give you like just max stats immediately. It would. Charisma, at least. It would give you max charisma. It will give you max heat in the desert. Well, it's not that warm. <laughs> Is thick skin that warm? Think about like a thick, thick jacket that just sort of like, I'm pretty sure like snakeskin absorbs heat. Well, I mean, they're I cold, be mistaken, they're cold blooded, but out of like so... a leather yeah, yeah, but th- that's the thing. That's their blood cleal. The blood doesn't come built into the jackets. Yeah. It's just the scales that are absorbing heat. Again, could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that's not a good choice of, like, clothing in heat. Yeah, apparently that jacket, that snakeskin jacket, was uh, Nicolas Cage's jacket. Hmm. Does Cage. it represent the same thing? You know, though? it remains to be determined. It remains to be. I do believe. What, what were those things that it represents? Well, obviously, it's his individuality and his belief in personal freedom, mm. which mm. I believe Nicolas Cage believes in as well. Mm. I think mm-hmm. it's a general enough mm-hmm. statement to believe in those things. It, is a gen- it just comes straight to mind with snakeskin jackets. Cage had asked David Lynch if he could wear the jacket in the film, and it was a tribute to Marlon Brando in The Fugitive Kind from 1960. Ah. After filming was completed, Nicolas Cage gave his jacket to Laura Dern, who plays Lula. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That's heavily sweet. Heavily sweet. Like pouring syrup on top of... I just had a pancake cake recently. Monster energy drink. No. No, I'll take my pancake Infusing cake. Infusing the maple syrup nice. with the monster. You're making me sick just like being in this area where you said that. If you are allergic to the 1950s, what I'm about to tell you is going to make you sick as well. Ugh. Or 60s. Ugh. During rehearsals, Lynch began talking about Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe with Cage and Dern. Yeah. He also acquired a copy of Elvis's Golden Records. And after listening to it, Nicolas Cage call, he called Nicolas Cage and told him that he had to sing two songs in the movie. He had to sing Love Me Tender and just Love Me, which yes. they sound very similar, but they're different songs. Cage yeah. agreed, and he recorded them so that later he could lip sync to them on set. So that's how the Elvis stuff came to be in the movie. Hmm. Luckily, there's no other Elvis portion, like, to this character whatsoever. Like, there's only the singing. No, nothing else notable about Elvis. Nothing else similar between me and the king, no. Yes, no. No, it, baby. No peanut. Instead, uh, Cage, peanut butter just, sandwich. Cage just makes it consistent. 
uh, excellent. Johnny Bravo, somewhat impersonation, like a diet Johnny Bravo. See, that's why, if you think about it, it makes total sense. That's why Bobby Peru, when he goes in during that really creepy scene with Laura Dern, he asked to use the bathroom because where did Elvis Presley die? On the can. On Johnny Bravo. On Johnny Bravo. Coming to Showtime in an area near you (laughs) now. If you don't go right now, you're going to miss it. Oh, no. So we open up the movie very boldly with Sailor coming down the stairs with Lula. We don't know them yet. And before we can know anything, this random guy comes up, tells Lula, you're mine, baby. I don't remember his voice. And then he he says that uh, Marietta. (laughs) Is he he like a hidden Decepticon? You're mine, baby. I don't remember. He says that Marietta, Lula's mom, told him that Sailor had been trying to have sex with her, the mom, on the toilet for past time. He remember toilets? That's where Elvis Presley died. Mm. On the can. Mm-hmm. Johnny Bravo. Mm-hmm. So Cage Rage then activates. Cage? At, no, At no, the no, allegation, that, at the situation. That's so much downplay right there. Cage Something Rage? is unlocked. That's Cage Rage. Within this man. That is Cage There's, Rage. is beyond Cage He sees rage. the bees. He He's reacts broken. accordingly. He becomes a monster. That's Nicolas Cage. As he flings this person to and fro, his body is but a limp tool for Cage to craft with in order to paint this bloody tapestry everywhere. That is, is just Nicholas Cage. Okay, you know, I, I guess I don't agree in the sense that I've seen Cage act more wild and violent in other films. So to me, this is like fa- fairly subdued for Nicholas Cage standards. Subdued he as still he wrecked just, this man's life. Yes. I, I've seen Mandy. You know, I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not as worried. He didn't like dual wield chainsaws at him or something. You know, <laughs> but if he had Doc them, Hayward if could've. he had them though, if he had Doc Hayward there, if he, had he Doc would rip Hayward, off those chainsaws yes. and use them himself. Yes. It'd, been, it'd be an epic saga. Yes. So Nicolas Cage is doing this. Marietta's watching, and she's just just enjoying the performance of this whole thing. She's It's ridiculous as an opening. Yes. Cage smokes his cigarette. He's just breathing heavily. He points at her, and she's like, it, she's like aroused at this point. And we cut to the PD Correctional Institution, where Sailor's being put behind bars for defending himself. There must have been, like, really no evidence, because, like, the camera shows this guy clearly had a knife. The so, camera shows. Yeah. And I'm assuming Marietta, also, Mary had uh, some methods. But that's the thing. He is put into jail. Yes. yes. But he's put into jail for manslaughter. It's brought yes. up multiple times yes. in which he did defend himself, but he did also kill a man. Yeah. So that's where it was put away. There's even a point where Johnny, the detective, ends up outright defending him yes. when, like, the mother is trying to slander his name and just like, no, he's no good. He can't be around my daughter. It's like, nah. Come on, he's a good kid. Like, no, he's a killer. He's insane. It's like, but he was defending himself. He had a knife. Like, so would it, you say the sentencing law. of 22 months, 18 days, good? Fair it, sentencing? It's a very specific amount. And That's what the screen said. You know, I have a complicated relationship with trying to measure out what is legally sound. Especially whenever it comes to someone. This makes it sound like you've had a really bad criminal history in the past. I do not want to disclose anything. (laughs) The bodies will never be found. (laughs) So I don't know what's necessarily the best course of action, if you will, with murder. Marietta is pretty confident. She knows the best solution. If someone kills, you kill them. That's what Marietta, eye for an eye but like taken to an extreme state of being. Mm -hmm. So Sailor, you know, leaves the correctional facility, calls Lula. 
Marietta answers, and she's like, I'm going to kill you. And Sailor's like, okay. Okay, baby. And then <laughs> Lula, Lula shows up, picks him up, surprises him with the snakeskin jacket, where we first hear about how it's a symbol of his individuality and belief in personal freedom. Yeah, because, like, Peanut did bring it to him. Peanut so, did consistently bring so it to him. so excited. And she's heard this, like, 50,000 times. She knows about this jacket. It's happened twice in the movie, So my question for you, Professor, what'd you think of the snakeskin jacket and his belief in personal freedom and individual liberty? It is a line out of nowhere, but at the same time, he says it with such, like, confidence and poise. Mm-hmm. I'm not taken out of the scene at all. Okay. It. it is. Good. It's fun. It is thoroughly fun. Well, you know what else is thoroughly fun? Power Mad. Power Mad playing at the Hurricane. So they got to have a quick time to go take some sex. Take some sex. Take some sex. I will take two sex before my... Obtain. I'll take two sex prior to the concert. (laughs) I want to go light today. And it does this this effect during the first sex scene, and it will reappear throughout the whole movie, is the screen will, like, go to a... I wouldn't say it flashes. It, like, fades to a color and then fades back out. This one mm. I noted as red. Other times it's like yellow. There's like a blue one at some point, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it might go green at one point. Do you have any thoughts on the color flashing during the sex scenes? Uh, not so much. They take about nine sexes uh, yeah. in this film. Which... It, 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 there's a lot. I think it's too much. I don't think so. Not in the sense of like, I'm. Uh, it's too much sex for my eyes. It's, oh, no. it's, it's not so much a moral concern so much as it is. I think it's boring. Like, I don't really get much out of the seventh time they've had sex. It's like, I, okay. I find it to be, like, something that interprets, like, their heavy passion for one another while it's also playing the role of, I know it's not, I know this is the incorrect medium, but it feels like just a loading screen. I'm, like, I'm okay with being here. I would prefer my movies without loading screens, usually. <laughs> you know? I want something interesting to look at. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's fine to do a few of them, but I think it is, like, it almost feels after a certain point, like, it's becoming so routine that I just want to see something new, something different. And like you said, a loading May screen. May I present you with the rest of the film? Well, and that's where you said loading screen. I think it's actually a pretty apt way to explain it because a lot of times they're just used as buffers between other scenes. Yes. Where it's like, oh man, we need to have this one scene happen and then something else after. And they don't really go well back to back. Time will Let's pass. Let's put a sex scene sex. in between. Like it's, it feels like Lynch was just using that as like his go-to and he used it maybe a little too much for my taste. I... I'm just thankful for a more happy sex life here. I, I'm game for more happy sex life. There's also a lot of tell, don't show situations happening in this movie, which again, I'm not going to say it's always a hardened rule, but like when they're done having the sexes, Mm -hmm. at least one of them, at least one Lula says, you know, we got to hurry because you know, Johnny Farragut's going to be on us like a duck on a June bug. And she just starts going on about how Johnny's this amazing detective telling us he's so good, telling us this. And there's a lot of moments in the movie and I'm not going to point out every single one. There's a lot of moment where characters just explain things to us. And I find it very uninteresting as a way to communicate information. Um, considering that there's other times in the movie where it's just sex scenes, they could have been used to show us something, I to give us indication. I mean, like, Amazing Detective, that could just be outright interpreted. I mean, this detective literally goes into the household of her mother and probably spends time across there. She probably has heard more tales of the positive more than the negatives. I, I just guy. don't feel the suspense from being told all these things. I'd but rather see do you, something. Do you need suspense for like being told that someone is being a great detective in the background? I kind of do because this I is think... setting up someone who's supposed to be a danger, but it, I don't feel any danger from it him. It doesn't feel like too much of a danger. And I, I fully admit to that. 
But at the same time, I think that that would be more dependent on if the tone of the film was more serious. I think yeah. that then I would have more of a problem. And it, it obviously it's more isn't. aloof. It obviously isn't. And do we ever find any indication for like what exactly Lula does for a job? If she has one, does she do anything? She's she's a does she have a life in, of her own? She's a character inside of a movie. Like her life of her own is just being trapped by her mother. Uh, unable well, and that's to what go I mean. Anywhere. Is her whole life feels like it's between two poles. It's between the mother and it's between Ripley. Yeah, Sailor. And the reason I bring that up though is because when Ripley Sailor he brings up like we're gonna go to Southern California. You know, if you're on board to do that, and she's like, I'll go to end of the world with you. And he's like, Rocking good news. And it's just like, does she have anything she's leaving behind? She has no reservations to drop her entire life for this person. And on one hand, it shows their devotion and their love and their passion and her desperation. And I do get that. On the other hand, she didn't have to think about it for five seconds, and it feels like <laughs> she had no loose ends. Like, does she have no life of her own? I think that whenever it comes to her, like side characters, unless the, the scenes are taking place in their work of profession, this stuff just isn't really covered too mm. terribly much whenever it comes to these sort of side characters, yeah. if you will. She's not a side character, though. She's a main she's, character. She's She is a main character. I do fully admit to that. She has the depth of a side character. But my, But I do not think that, like, exploring that will add too much. I think that having her as this more so pulled spirit mm -hmm. adds more to the more free nature that I think that they're okay. trying to compel uh, with what they're going for. I sure. mean, like if she had something left behind, maybe that might show on how willing she is to throw things to the side. Maybe it would but show. I yeah. She's willing to make sacrifices. But at this point, like, She's more so free as a bird. She is just going to fly off in this direction along with Sailor because that's where her heart will lead. And I, I think it does well for this film, at least. So they go over to the Power Mad concert over at the Hurricane. Yep. And I wrote in a bullet point, they dot, 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 dance. I wasn't sure how to describe their dancing. Professor, could you describe the way in which Sailor and Lula dance? Excuse me. They, they can dance if they want to, and they can leave their friends behind. They, they don't have any friends. I've been convinced they don't, they don't have anyone but They're each no other. They're friends of theirs. You're trying to show off the one song you know on pod, and uh -huh. I, you know, I respect it. I respect it. It's I respect fair, it, too, because I'm here, and I'm doing the It's a fair game, joke. but how would you describe their dancing? Um, wild, it, perhaps? Very wild. Is it, It's very about... Is it heartfelt? It it, can, it could be. It's very bounce oriented, and when mm. uh, that's where I also bring up the example of fun fact: the safety dance is something in which like bouncers would throw up people who are just sort of jumping around with overall music just to try to make room inside the clubs and so on. But hey, you can dance how you want to. Uh, but no, it, it seems like for the most part, it's just like them sort of like getting into this step it, it, it's almost as if like they're getting ready for a fight and a mm. fight does soon yeah this guy this up. guy starts dancing with lula and i unless i missed something i didn't get the sense that he was doing anything obviously wrong like this is a dance of a group here and he just yes. kind of starts dancing with this girl she doesn't really say no she just kind of dances with him for a while it's very hard to say no when it's like ah, da, 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 but also da, da, that's da. how everyone's dancing there like that seems to be the atmosphere of everything going on i think that uh it's big to kind of show the protective nature of sailor because <laughs> you mean the murderous nature of sailor now he did warn he him. did it he did warn him he didn't actually kill him the way he phrases it too, like, are you going to provide me with an opportunity to prove my love to this girl? 
And then the guy's like, uh, don't mess with me, punk. <laughs> okay, I'm going to turn you into a peanut butter banana sandwich. And he does that. He turns him into a fried peanut butter banana sandwich. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel like, I don't know. It just, if it was trying to communicate that this guy was a jerk to his girl, I guess there's other ways to express that. It really didn't feel like he even knew what he had walked into. He just started dancing with some random woman at the dancing happening there. And then it turns out you danced with the wrong woman because Sailor's going to attack you. Yeah. Um, granted, the response of like, you don't want to mess with me is also very combative. I'm not trying to defend this man. I'm just more like I'm curious. not defending anyone in this case. I'm just so It's just before the assault happens, I'm like, I don't know if that was the normal reaction to have Sailor. <laughs> Sailor doesn't have normal reactions. I don't get me wrong. Sailor has very passionate reactions. Yeah. Yeah, and also there's this weird occurrence that happens where uh, he he basically controls the band, where he can like, like he, he just like summons their music and they're like, oh yeah, I know this jam, I know. What yeah, you're he going asked for. them to play. Let's go. Yeah, he tells them that they have a lot of the same power that E had, E being Elvis Presley, and he just they they just happen to know. You know what he wants. Love me. They just happened to the song, and not only that, but he had the power to stop them before the fight happened. Mm-hmm. So I I like that. Again, <laughs> it's because we're not taking the movie as realism. Yes, uh, it exists within this own weird universe. That's something I'm willing to roll with. I guess I think it's fun. I think it's light. I have no problem with that. I guess for me, where I'm less convinced on the logic of it is when I think it's at the detriment of pacing or characters, mm-hmm. as in examples I have mentioned thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of um, the Elvis covers that we hear from Nicolas Cage? I didn't really know Elvis that much. But Nicolas Cage is singing. What do you think he's of it? He's singing, and he's singing well. He did a good job with the song times. I, 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 when I think of Nicolas Cage singing, I think first of Peggy Sue got married. Yeah, no, Peggy but, Sue gets married. One of the two. Yeah. No, I, I think he does well with deep voice and vibrato with his overall tone mm-hmm. throughout them. That it does. If there was two concerts happening, you're at, you're at like a music festival, you yes. either go see Nicolas Cage performing Elvis, Elvis covers. Yes. Or you can go see the songs of James Hurley. Uh-huh. Which one are you going to go to? I'd leave. I don't like concerts. Oh. Okay, <laughs> you have two CDs to buy <laughs> two no two vinyls two vinyls we're gonna we're gonna you have a you have a record player i'm lame and places are cramped okay so you have you, you have, have t- to be worried two about vinyls the disease what is your final vinyl pick between uh-huh. james hurley and nicholas cage um well i would want to save money so i would leave this oh no, my god gonna, <laughs> i would two say. youtube videos <laughs> I would go for the Nicolas Cage in truth. Okay, okay. Like, uh, like there is like a distinct tone that James does bring out in his song, but I find my overall taste to go closer to these covers and what mm-hmm. Nick Cage is singing. There's a lot of sex scenes we mentioned before. I, yeah. I just have a note that says in bed with Lula, and that's for one instance, but it, it could have been a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. They talk about a bunch of things in these in these situations that occur. Uh-huh. One that I thought was really interesting visually was where they're shown laying across from each other, but they're like laying legs out to the other person in such a way where they almost look like cat dog because underneath the sheets are their legs joining and they look like one long person. Yep. One either end is the top half torso. It's a sex position. You see, you take the Ken doll and the Barbie doll and you just... I hope Mesh. the audio picks up for that. <laughs> <laughs> or else it doesn't. I don't know. I don't know what's funnier. So, yeah, they do the cat dog thing. At one point, Lula expositions about how her father died in a fire. She says how that was one year before she met him. And I'm like, really? You've never talked about this before? He doesn't already know that you're, a year ago your father died in a fire? You know. Come on. It seems that they have a lot of sexy time. 
but not judging a lot from of... like the quantity inside of this film. And I don't think that there's going to be like much like sexy time going on where like you know my dad's dead. And I but I feel like that would have come up in conversation and... before this point. Okay, Khalil, as someone who has like. Experience lost. It's something that I don't think I've ever really even brought up that much to my but partner. For, for how much these people are like into each other, is there is there a meter that they've got to fill? Yes, this? they are red hot. They <laughs> is are. This, is this persona? We're just trying to get all those social links maxed out. I I don't know. I <laughs> again, I just press F to doubt. That's okay. that's my feelings. Is that there. it's clearly there to tell us as an audience about it. Like, that, that much is obvious. Mm-hmm. It's whether or not you think it's smoothly integrated enough to work in-universe in the moment as a viewer. Yeah. For me, it took me out of the experience, and I was rolling my eyes at the exposition. Okay. For you, it worked. And that's yes. just all there is to it. It did fine enough because it still was consistent with the tone of the rest of the film. There will be points, like you said before, where people begin sort of, like, discussing or just talking about something. Mm-hmm. This one was more visual because we did actually get a few bits of scenes inside of it. Um, but it didn't like, it, it didn't seem out of place for what the film was already giving me. Mm-hmm. You know what else the film gave you though? Uh, it gave you that scene at the bar with the guy who makes quacking noises. Yeah. So the, the actor the is actors from Dune. He's Freddie Jones. Freddie he Jones. played Thufir in Dune Thufir. and he played Bites and Elephant Man. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's already played like some weird looking dudes in, in Lynch's films. This is a weird scene, even by Lynch standards. Yep. You show this to someone, it's obviously very like, what? <laughs> was it a goose or a duck that was in blue velvet that Kyle MacLachlan was impersonating? Chicken. Chicken. Totally different kind of poultry. Totally different foul. Different, different foul play. Different, different foul play. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That was good. That was mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at one point, he just says in this like helium high-pitched voice, Pigeons spread diseases and mess up the place. You've seen that. They bought so much helium for Frank Booth in the prior film that they had to use it somewhere. So they just sort of like carried it over into the next film. Lynch has said that this used to be a much longer scene. There was more of this originally. There was more. And uh, this is what would have given it the X rating. It's one of the cuts that yeah. they had to make. The reason his voice is pitched up is because Lynch happened to hear his voice sped up when they were editing the movie. They were just going through scenes and like were like fast forwarding through things. He heard how funny the voice sounded. He got permission from the actor to then use that effect in the audio like later in post editing. That's supposedly why this audio exists. It might just really be Lynch thought it was funny sounding. Yeah. And that that's probably as deep as it goes. Now that, you know, death of the author, if you want to interpret there's some deep reason behind why this man sounds like that, by all means, professor, you have my blessings and my good graces. Well, you see, it is to show the high-pitched optimism that was once in their lives, and that, too, will disappear in time, since this character is just there for, like, five freaking minutes. What about the pigeons? The pigeons spreading diseases and messing up the place. They've seen that. Pigeon plague? I, I do not know as far as, like, vermin who are spreading diseases it it seems like it's one of those situations where something will become dark or there will be something in which uh will slowly infect around them and hurt their resolve it's just like a simple way of just saying things are gonna suck man that's fair enough remember chris isaac so he's the one that played chet desmond in firewalk with me yes and he we talked about him as well, that he was almost in Blue Velvet for consideration there, yes, right? Yes, I so know all the actors. His song, Wicked Game, uh, is used in this film. 
Okay. Um, and so a lot of it's the instrumental we hear during the film. We hear an instrumental version of Wicked Game when they were driving, and Sailor admits to something he'd been keeping a secret. Now, he'd been trying to tell Lula this before, but he just he couldn't do it. Again, they have, there's communication problems in this relationship. Yeah. But he had known Lula's father. He thought he was a good guy. He admits that he used to do some driving, but to, driving for some guy named Marcelo Santos. And he quit working for him, but before he did, he saw a house gulp in flames. And of course, he heard later it was her house the night her father died in the fire. This also goes back to the idea that it's exposition from earlier because if he's been thinking about this for a long time and he he's known about, I don't know, there's just so many things where it's just being, it's being delivered at an audience's rate rather than the character's rate in my mm-hmm. opinion. But yeah, he tells Lula this and she's like, that's a pretty heavy secret. And then they just continue their road trip, you know, move on. <laughs> there's not really, I mean, unless I'm forgetting, there's not really a huge direct fallout from that. I think by the end of the movie, we see the relationship have strain and we do see Lula falling into a bit more of despair over the situations that she's in. Yeah. But I don't feel like there's a direct result of, Hey, you kept this a secret from me that you like knew my father and were around when he died. Like that's a pretty heavy thing. I, I, I feel like I'm almost thankful that it didn't fall into, I know it's not the same trope, but kind of the trope of the liar revealed mm. in which it would dwell on it for too long. I think that there's been a show enough that someone who waits about 22 months for someone mm-hmm. to pop out of prison and join up with them again, and could especially explain, later in the film. Could you explain that trope of a liar revealed? Not, you've referenced it in another pod, too. I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a trope inside a film in which... Like a uh, TV tropes thing? Movie uh, trope thing, I think, mainly. But it is well, also Well, I'm saying like the, the website. Trope. Like, is that where this comes from? Oh, no. It's just something that appears in, in the literal term oh. of trope. I don't know okay. Okay. if... I, I don't know TV tropes. Okay. So... Um, but it's where, like, suddenly a liar is revealed inside of the story. There's so much sort of, like, hyperfixation onto it that everything sort of gets, like, thrown off this, like, proverbial boat mm-hmm. because of that liar reveal. And then the story has to do its best to almost, like, try to recover from that situation. That almost the concept of liar reveal can cause, like, people to roll their eyes at a film or just be like, okay, we're going to go through these same steps again that we've seen in so many other films. Here we go. That can become daunting or exhausting to see. I guess I'm not really sure I'm familiar with this one as much. Like what's an example of a film that does that? So just because I'm very tired, I do have a few from uh, TV tropes. Haha! It was TV tropes the whole time. In order to give you a few examples, so uh, mm-hmm. I have about three of your favorite films right here. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so citing TV tropes, um, liar revealed uh, an example like from a Bug's Life has Flick supposedly finding warrior bugs to save his colony after misconstruing a situation when he realizes his his mistake that they're circus performers rather than trained warriors, he's forced to keep the lie going in order to not cause panic among the other ants. Once the colony finds out about the... Finds out after their owner comes to the colony to get them back, it inevitably results in one of the most painfully played straight examples of the trope in animation history. So that seems to be like the baseline from whoever wrote this TV trope okay. article. There is then uh, Disney's Aladdin, 
Straight rat Aladdin uses a wish granted by the genie to impersonate a prince so he can court Princess Jasmine. Aladdin and genie argue about whether to tell Jasmine the truth. Later on, Jafar reveals Aladdin's true identity. But Jasmine isn't angry for Aladdin and for lying, mainly because the princely exterior was a fancy cover for the street rat uh, she first met and fell in love with. So this is one of those, like, lie-revealed things where, like, things are much more calmer okay. rather than, like, frustration. And, of course, your favorite film of all, uh, Chicken Run. Um, I haven't seen Chicken Run in years. I'll still listen, but I haven't heard it. Rocky leaves the other half of his poster when he abandons the hen farm, revealing his flight was merely him being shot out of a cannon. I guess I don't, this is where maybe I'm struggling here. I don't see this as a bad thing. Yeah. I I don't, you mean you're joking about my favorite movies, but like, no, I mean, I, I, I do like Aladdin. I do like a bug's life. Oh yeah. And I don't have a problem with it in those movies. So I guess I don't, Unless it's something that you're seeing constantly, yes. I, in isolation, I don't really have a problem with it. So I would have preferred, yeah, to have more of a... You mentioned at the beginning of the pod, one thing you liked about this movie was consequences for action. Yes. I guess I would have liked more of a direct response from Lula. If it depended on the response, again, I don't know whether or not Lula would make a direct response depending on their relation, like if this might have been a Jasmine situation or anything like that. Yeah. But... At the end of the day, it is something in which is something that I've seen multiple times and grown accustomed to that I don't want to see the same thing unless they do something fun with it. And I think that you can empathize with that from our discussions beforehand of like uh-huh. seeing the same things over and over again. You know what's something that Lula and Ripley have never seen before? Hmm. Uh car accident in the side of the road with clothes everywhere on the street. Oh, man. Not street. They're on the highway. Oh, the no. highway is where the clothes were. Honestly, oh, no. Because Yeah, just... Sherilyn Fenn. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn. Bloody, but alive. She's, <laughs> she's there. Yep. Wahaha. Yeah, because uh, there's something that comes up. So Sherilyn Fenn is panicking. She's wondering where items on her person have gone. Mm-hmm. She's wondering about her appearance. She's worried about... Uh, how her mother uh, is going to react. She's uh-huh. worrying about very, what would usually be trivial. teenage things, but yeah. trivial in the moment that like friends are. But she's in this state of shock and delirium. That and a hole in her head. She's in the state of a she, hole in her head. She's scratching her head and there's some, head some mushy and there's stuff in her hair. In there yeah. Before she collapses and dies out. Throughout this whole entire scene, mind you, is also Sailor just trying to speak towards the character and just saying, look, we got to help you. And he even, like, outright says, like, man, like, we got to figure this out. Like, I might get in trouble, but there's someone who needs help. Showing the kind and good nature that um, he's willing to give forward as a character, that he's even willing to risk, like, losing out on this patrol to try to help someone out. Uh Uh-huh. So what made you go? Because it's someone picking at their brain with squishy sounds. Oh. So it that, is that, not that exactly a fun sort of like sound. Yes. I don't get affected by things that way. So for me, it was very neutral. I, I was fine with it. That's neat. It I takes could a feel lot. It. it takes a lot to make me uncomfortable in a film. Okay. So nothing in Wild at Heart really made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Particularly. What'd you think of the scene overall? Scene overall? Because it's kind of random in the scope of the film. So was the duck scene. Like, no, no, the duck scene is very random, but like in an obviously funny random way. Yes. This is just kind of random in the sense that it doesn't matter 
Except for the fact that afterward, Laura Dern's character is kind of wondering if this is like a premonition, if it's a bad omen for their relationship, or the idea of the car accident as like a an eventual tragedy, possibly, that could happen to them. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I don't necessarily know if this ties into much, It's plot-wise. It's something that I think aids in the general presentation of Sailor's character more than anything, and also causes more so turmoil within Peanut. Mm-hmm. But I think that those are just the two major things that it gives and it is the two like major goals accomplished, I find. And at long last, they've accomplished the goal of going to the destination known as Big Tuna, a place that they totally were planning to go to the whole time and both knew about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Wasn't it called like Fuck You or Fuck Off? Or... The sign, uh, yeah, the big F-U fish-shaped sign. F-U, yep, yep. Yeah, Lula's yep. like, why are, we, why are we going here? And Sailor just doesn't answer, really, just kind of dodges that. Yeah. And they proceed to go there. We have Sailor uh, approaching a house that earlier in a cutscene had kind of been teased out with dramatic music. And we find there Isabella Rossellini, the actor from Blue Velvet, who played... You didn't recognize her, did you? The character. Dorothy. Dorothy, yeah, clearly. Yeah, like... Yeah. Really? You didn't? Cause, okay. Okay, Dorothy had like a big old bit of hair, remember? Yeah, this is an obvious like fake blonde wing over her in this movie. I yeah. didn't realize that. Anyway, whether you recognized her or not, we have Perdita Durango in this movie. Mm-hmm. And she has some information and a, perhaps a past connection to Sailor. We don't know the full details on. Oh, is she here to tell us herself? Well, she... She has some information. Go ahead. Bring her out, Khalil. Well, she denies that there's a hit on Sailor when he asks. Mm. But okay. later we see her talking to is it Bobby Peru, I believe, right? She clearly does know there's a hit and just was not telling him that truth. Yeah, from the prior, like, silver dollar scenes. I feel like Perdita Durango is one of those characters that, like, on her own does not feel like a complete character or a complete idea in this film. She feels like she's there to advance a certain element of the plot, and that's pretty much her existence. Yeah. That makes more sense when you know that this character does have more content. So, <laughs> fun fact, by the way, not counting Twin Peaks, if we're looking only at movies, All this right. is the only David Lynch film to have a sequel. So, really? 1997's Perdita Durango, directed by Alex de la Iglesia, follows the titular anti-heroine, Perdita Durango, this time not played by Isabella Rossellini, played by Rosie Perez. So there's a sequel where it continues that character's storyline. I assume that's based off of a book. I don't know. I haven't looked into that film. It's not a David Lynch film. It's not something I'm really particularly interested in. I don't love Wild at Heart. If I see it, I see it. Not seeking it out. out of, but... Out of curiosity. Yes. Just, just like blatant curiosity. Is that available on streaming services? I'm checking Just Watch right now. Not sponsored. But please, hit us up. Okay, I'm not sure if this is correct or not. So there's a there's a movie. Always love, I far more prefer yeah. a left turn than a yes or no. So there's a 1997 movie on Just Watch called Dance with the Devil. Yeah. And it says below original title Perdita Durango, which okay. is probably the movie. All right. It is currently available for streaming for free on Vudu. And like six other places if you have <laughs> subscriptions. It's very available. <laughs> 
And uh, the, the synopsis. I'm going to read the synopsis, okay? Please, please, go on. She's sexy, shameless, and loves taking people to their limit. Me. She's a dangerous young woman who dreams about a jaguar that licks her naked body and sleeps by her side. Ooh. Her past is bathed in blood and weird passions. Mm. Now she's met the man of her wildest dreams. Oh. He's dark, tough, and mysterious. Awesome. He likes robbing banks, trafficking in corpses, and spicing it all with voodoo rituals. Sometimes. Together with the duo set... The duo? Who's the duo? Oh, that's the guy. Okay. Yes. Together, the duo sets off toward Mexico, destined to become the most feared outlaws in the continent. Even when, like, she's the main character, <laughs> like, they have to, like, bring in a sort of, like, bad boy love Yeah, of course interest. they do. I think this is hilarious. So, people who liked Dance with the Devil also liked The Fast and the Furious, Fast Five, uh-huh. Wild at Heart. What? And then the, the fourth movie is is Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. <laughs> what? What is that? Jodorowsky, the guy who made, tried to make... I know who Jodorowsky Dune. is. What is this film? The Holy Mountain. Context. The Holy Mountain is a very controversial, very, like... Um, out there surrealist film. I haven't seen it myself, but it's like tons of nudity, tons of weird stuff, extremely art house, now, so which now, is not Fast and the Furious, and nothing against either of those two, but they don't typically end up in the same like recommended list. Now that only makes you don't do me, a double feature of the Holy Mountain and Fast and the Furious. It, it just makes me like obviously unbiasedly like, taking the people who enjoyed these films and just believe that this is just a sandwich of them. So this is just like a surreal version of Fast and the Furious, probably. which is a fascinating idea. <laughs> um, so fascinating, you say? Fascinating. <laughs> So yeah, anyway, I feel like Perdita Durango feels like half a character. I don't know if that other movie does anything for her. <laughs> That's her other half. Maybe and it she is. she finds her other half. Maybe it is. I think in this movie she feels kind of bleh. But yeah. anyway, nothing against the actor, as usual. Fine performance. It seems like there's a history implied and just like scenarios that come through, but no real action on that. That being said, while I'm not saying anything against the actor, I don't necessarily know if the performance sold me either. I don't know if Rossellini communicated the kind of character that at least the second movie is trying to say she is. <laughs> I'm not sure what she is in this movie. I guess I understand through the plot she's kind of double-crossing because she doesn't tell Nicolas Cage what's going on and they appear to have a history. But I don't feel like I understand her and, and not even like, oh, she's hard to understand. But I mean, like, I don't know if I understood what was what the point of her character was hardly in this movie. She was there to be a reason for Nicolas Cage's character to come to Big Tuna. Yeah. And That's about she it. was a driver. Okay. And she was probably intimately involved with Robert. Bobby Peru? Yeah, that's what I said, now, Robert. Now, Bobby Peru, there's a lie we could say about him. And we will say about those things. But in terms of like just focusing now on Sailor's story... We're just gonna we're just gonna kind of skip a lot of that. We'll get back to that. Is that cool with you? No, but Professor? we'll do it anyway. Okay. So there's there's stuff going on with Bobby Peru, Perdi Durango, all that sort of stuff going on. Blah 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 blah. We end up having this situation where Sailor is approached by Bobby Peru to do this job, and it's not going to be yeah. that big of a problem. It's going to be an easygoing job. It's going to be super easy, in and out. Everything's going to go fine. We have about. 30 minutes left in the film. There's no problems that's going to cross us. to say it Don't doesn't... worry. It's going to be okay. Let's have some beers. It's going to be okay. We're going to move over here. It's going to be okay. I'm going to pick you up in your car. It's going to be okay, man. Suffice to say it wasn't okay, It man. was not okay. And Nicolas Cage, his character, Sailor, ends up serving six years in prison. Yes. 
And in this time, Lula's had a child that is his biologically. No, no. within this time, like before, like yeah. being caught. She told like, him in the act of being caught. We have like him actively like apologizing, almost in like a very begging and uh, broken way. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Yeah, go on. I like that because this is the bad thing, the consequence, and then he's locked he away. He does is have the consequences. Thing and the he... consequence. I love these things, Khalil. I love you them You know, so. one day you will face the consequences of your criminal activity that we've hinted at in this pod ominously. Never. But that's why I love it, because I don't get a chance to experience it myself. You just love seeing other characters have retribution. I love it. It, it. it feels like I'm going through it, and therefore I don't need to. I See, I don't feel like it's necessarily a positive or a negative whether or not the characters have those consequences. It's very subjective. Consequences starved. It's very subjective for the movie experience. Like, I am way less harsh than you are on Blue Velvet for this. Yeah. But obviously... It's a difference, right? Jeffrey gets a free pass on everything. Yes. And we've gone to the point of you've convinced me to suspect that there's more corruption in the law enforcement with Sandy's father. Thank you. To the point where, yeah, like no one who's actually, other than the obviously evil people like Frank, other people just kind of like get away scot-free for what they did. Even Sandy to some degree, like it's all hunky-dory even though she definitely assisted in this whole situation. Yep. Nobody has any lingering problems. Whereas in this movie, Sailor, yeah, not only is he arrested at the beginning for killing that man in the manslaughter situation, he then served six years here for this armed robbery that resulted in several deaths and injuries. I think several deaths. It was a few injuries. Well, we we did have the bank tellers like yeah. uh, alive, sort of like moving belly side around the floor, all bloody, wondering where a hand went because they could probably put it back on thanks to surgery. As a dog ran away with it, still trying to put that one together, friend. Uh, but beyond that, we know we do know Bobby died. Bobby Peru. Yep. Yep. Explosively. Very much. So, yeah, I understand the six-year sentencing. I get that, all that. But there's also the emotional guilt that he experiences where when he does reunite with Lulu and meets his son, right? I believe it's implied son at this point. Um, oh, no, it's the son. Like, she said that she would literally name this child this name. Yeah. The, I'm blanking. And... I am too. <laughs> and they we're do gonna mention with, this we're gonna child's go with name Nugget. multiple times. We're going to go with Nuggets. Nuggets is a very <laughs> fitting name for this ambiguous child that male or female will be named Nugget. Anyway, he meets Nugget and he meets Lulu again after prison. And he basically feels like he's not good enough for them. So not only does he get the, the illegal consequences, but also like internally he goes through guilt. Yes. The ways that Jeffrey and Sandy and, you know, other people did not in Blue Velvet. He, like, there is this, like, present sort of, like, dissonance that occurs inside the vehicle that there has been a distance that has been torn between them. Likely a lot from, like, his personal guilt between them that he just looks at Peanut and he looks at Nugget and he, he just says that I've been gone long enough. You guys have been doing great without me. I, I've got to go. And it seems like he would have had this mentality were it not for an out-of-left-field plot change that happens near the end. Now, we have yeah. managed to go for at least an hour. I don't know how long it's been recording. At least an hour, right? Hour. Cut a few things here and there. It'll be about an hour. Okay. We've been talking about an hour. We have not talked about Wizard of Oz very much. 
I don't know if we've said it once. We have, have. Have we said it? Uh, we briefly mentioned it with earlier. Six Dream okay. Samurai. We've, we've managed to not talk about like the Follow fact the that yellow brick home, it is road bludgeoning you throughout this film. Okay, so yeah. we will we will address that. Right now, just just kind of smile and nod, as I have to smile and nod when I'm watching mm-hmm. this movie, mm-hmm. that Sailor sees Glinda the Good Witch. After being beaten to a pole. After in being the street. beaten to a pole. Which by the way, at first I thought like that's the reason why he had to go away, because he knows that like something will follow him, danger will follow yeah. him. Like he wants to keep that away from him. Because these this these members of this gang just sort of come out of nowhere. It looks and just like they're gonna like, start snapping him. their fingers and it's gonna be West Side Story here any minute. I don't know about West Side Story. I just thought that this was a separate sect of the Mr. Reindeer games. So 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 but yeah, he gets beat up and then this is this is one of my major criticisms in the movie. Take it or leave it. Yeah. I think that this is a very bad execution of a deus ex machina. So, mm-hmm. you know, you use a trope. I'll use a trope, I guess, as well here. <laughs> in the sense of, like, this is something clearly written into the movie to abruptly change the course of events in a dramatic way that otherwise would not have happened. It just steers the whole thing. And, yes, it is foreshadowed insofar as this movie hits you over the head with Wizard of Oz. I still am not satisfied when it happens. Yeah. I find this to be a very cheap way to get Sailor to suddenly have a happy ending. So this is interesting. The original ending of the book, Sailor and Lula split up. They do not get back together. Yeah. Lynch didn't like that ending. He changed it. Lynch was the one that didn't like that. Lynch wanted the happy ending. Lynch wanted a happy ending. Now, granted, when you see it's Wizard of Oz related, it kind of makes sense. I'm not sure how much the Wizard of Oz is in the book, actually. I don't think it's hardly in there. It <laughs> what, might not even be there at all. What is this nonsense? This is just a reprint of the Wizard of Oz verbatim. He said, Lynch said, it honestly didn't seem real considering the way they felt about each other. It didn't seem one bit real. It had a certain coolness, but I couldn't see it. So that's how Lynch felt about the original ending where they split up. Now, this is interesting. I keep saying it's interesting. I hope you believe, Hopefully you believe me. I'm expositioning at it's you the way, this, the way this movie does to you. The way this movie tells you how to feel, yes. I'm telling you how to feel. Tell me more. When we were talking about Industrial Symphony last time, yes. that opens up uh-huh. with a very similar-sounding Nicolas Cage breaking up with a very similar-sounding Laura Dern. The characters aren't named Sailor and Lula, but that breakup, don't you think it kind of seems a little bit like Maybe how this might have ended in a, in the book, you no. know, maybe as though they had recorded an alternate version of something like an ending and they decided to use it for something. I don't know. Doesn't it seem kind of interesting Word. that this is portraying the ending that could have been. And then industrial symphony is almost like a weird alternate ending. So like, okay, there's this game series, right? Called dragon guard. Okay, made by Yoko Taro. And one of the endings of that offshoots into a game called Nier. There's like ending A, B, C, D, and E. Okay, I feel like we just activated at least ending B or C or D or maybe even E mm-hmm. when we got to Industrial Symphony and the Lynch ending A is what we get in Wild at Heart. I, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to feel like we kind of got like the other side in Industrial Symphony of what could have been in terms of her psyche. Where did Sailor get the phone? It doesn't matter. <laughs> he could have got out of jail and used the phone, and then she was at her mom's place, and she used the phone there. I don't know. <laughs> he, uses, he gets out of jail and uses the phone, the singular phone, the one phone of destiny. Yes, yes. So I don't know what to make of this ending myself. I, I generally lean negative. I generally think it was a mistake. I think if we had gone the route you're talking about where danger follows him and that's why he breaks up with her is for her own good. 
I don't know if that's more satisfying to me because at the same point, he, you know, at the end, he proposes to her. He basically, he sings the song Love Me Tender by Elvis, which he said earlier he would only sing to his wife. So, like, that's a sweet moment. It's payoff from earlier. I also don't want to believe he would just abandon his kid. Yeah, with the song that he, like, sang off to Peanuts at the near start of this journey to conclude with this song. Well, no, he had never sang it to her before. No, he sang a different song to her and just made the emphasis He would not sing it, He would not sing his favorite song to her. Unless wife. Unless wife. And wife accomplished. wife acquired. Wife achieved. Mm -hmm. Wife. (laughs) Achievement unlocked. There we go. But I just... And so they just sing on top of a vehicle, and it is... It's... It accomplishes enough for me that remains in that strange dreamlike quality that Lynch does come off with. And it's rare enough for me to see in which it caught me off guard. To have a happy ending? Yes. Considering this narrative. Considering the narrative and considering the past... Director efforts. Director efforts. um, Not many sort of like outright happy endings. Like, yeah. even when I started... Eraserhead was a happy ending. Like, my first thought when it came to this was like, but what about Mr. Reindeer? And then I literally thought to myself, ah, I don't care. This is nice. <laughs> Save it for the sequel, right? No, no, not even save for a sequel. I just stopped caring about Mr. Reindeer. This fair, is nice. Fair enough. Fair enough. David Lynch stated, quote, for me, it's just a compilation of ideas that came along. The darker ones and the lighter ones. The humorous ones all working together. You try to be as true as you can to those ideas and try to get them on film. Some critics have postulated that, similar to Lynch's Blue Velvet, the sudden idealistic ending of Perfect Happiness is meant to be ironic, suggesting that the people who have potential for violence struggle to find that true happiness, so the only way they would get it is to this weird deus ex machina Wizard of Oz situation. So some, I would almost call them apologists, try to <laughs> reconcile like a darker tone still with this ending, saying, yes, yes, they have a happy ending, but only in fiction. It's an ironic ending. The same with the Blue Velvet is ironic because the darkness still lingers underneath. What are your thoughts on that idea, that this interpretation? Is a, this is a movie where Audrey picks at her brains while she is panicking and slowly dying off. This is also the film in which the main antagonist's name is Mr. Reindeer. This what are you is- implying? I'm implying the fact that it's okay to have the silly happy ending because we've been silly for a good duration of the film. Dark moments have happened, absolutely. Dark things have been at the underbelly. Uh But sometimes a happy ending just is a happy ending, I think. like I think David Lynch was guided by his interpretation of love enough that yeah. he, he, he saw this as the hyperbole of that love. And, and again, obviously Lynch is on the same page. He does refer to this ending as happy. He does not refer to it as ironically happy or something. Not only then is this a happy ending for Sailor, it's also a happy ending for Peanut. Lula. Yeah, Peanut. Lula pays Peanut. fortune. Mm-hmm. Played by Laura Dern. Now, Laura Dern also played Sandy in Blue Velvet, the Lynch film right before this. Mm-hmm. And also we saw her little stints in Industrial Symphony. So my question, I guess, for you, Professor, is how do you feel about... Laura Dern's performance as Lula versus performance as Sandy. Peanut's better. Like as a, as a performance or as a character or both. Yes. Like Sandy again is a character that is really going along. Like here's a similarity. Both are going along with the actions of the male love interest. Yeah. Lead male love interest Mm -hmm. throughout it. But 
if you told me on like, for one, if I could think of like more qualities in the character, well, Peanut's gonna win on that. If I'm gonna think about like being compelled to believe that someone's gonna chase a certain lifestyle, yeah, I'm gonna go with Peanut on that. For things that where characters are consistent throughout, yep, Peanut there. You're really compelled to use Peanut as the name, aren't you? Uh, it's a good name. And for the amount that we actually get onto the character that sort of like even complicates things, yeah, there's more depth than Peanut. Peanut won. Peanut, peanut burns Sandy you, you, down. You're going to be a planter a, toward that peanut? In a large pyre and fire. Plant your foot down on that peanut? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Because I feel... Cr- I, I feel like I've cracked the nut and I'm enjoying the sweet, sweet insides. At so I don't know where this metaphor is going anymore. I just enjoy peanuts. Sure, sure. So outside of outside of the character writing, what did you think of Dern's performance? Dern's performance? She was offered more range in okay. this. And, and she utilized it well? She utilized it well, I believe. Okay. I think that overall she is a talented actress in what she overall was given. Mm-hmm. I think that there were, even with the... She has to compete with Cage. Like, she has to She has to compete with Cage. She has to compete with Willem Dafoe. And her mother, when they're talking. She's got a lot of, like, heavy waiters against her, and yet she still, like, stands out in each scene that she's in. And also, those characters are way more ridiculous than her. She comes across as the more normal, level-headed person by association. Yes, she exists still in the realm of that passive character because a lot of things are happening to her but she still is someone who will act out for one example a scene i'm sure we'll go deeper into later is the very uncomfortable scene with bobby where like bobby's pushing making advances on her it's it's a scene that doesn't set well with me for probably obvious reasons but Throughout the time in the character, what I imagine was going to just be a chance for Defoe's character to just be more despicable and just, like, have this character be helpless on the mm-hmm. sideline. She does attempt to put up a fight. She actively is pushing resistance against the character, which I found to be a little bit surprising, actually, in a And I think there's also readings way. of the character's reaction there that are, are very mixed to the extent yes. that... I, I I don't know, again, sticky as the situation is, I would almost say that there's a part of her that was enticed by the situation. And this is where, again, it gets into all that murky gray area stuff that a lot of Lynch's more controversial scenes invoke, for I, worse or better. I think that overall, the way that she portrays Peanut as a character, there's multiple scenes in which you can look at the character's reaction to a situation and come out with... Very different readings, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, being this uncomfortable scene. For another, being when she has to step out of the car and she is trying to vent for herself. Right. Um, for just like her overall bedside sort of concerns and where she does speak and where mm-hmm. she doesn't speak. It's a layered performance, which I, again, am very thankful to enjoy. Now, while Cage has said that this movie helped him break away from method acting, and I don't know if I'd go as far as say that Dern is a method actor or was a method actor, there was a bit of attempt done by Laura Dern to play into this role a bit and get into this role in a very specific way in her outside life. Mm -hmm. So before filming started, Laura Dern suggested that she and Nicolas Cage go on a weekend road trip to Las Vegas 
so that they could form a bond and get a handle on their characters together. What? <laughs> Laura Dern Excuse remembers. You? Laura Dern remembers. I don't know how to do a Laura Dern voice, so I'm not going to do that. I'll just do a David Lynch voice instead. Sounds perfect. Yep. Laura Dern remembers, quote, We agreed that Sailor and Lula needed to be one person, one character, and we would each share it. I got the sexual, wild, Marilyn, gum-chewing fantasy female side. Nick's got the snakeskin, Elvis, raw, combustible, masculine side. You know, there's a problem with this because when you say that, you're going to read in David Lynch's voice. Yeah. I'm imagining David Lynch saying that he got that yes. out of this performance. Yes. He just walked in as the third wheel and said, I am the sexy one. I am Marilyn Monroe. But, um, yeah, so that was that was kind of her getting into character. I, uh, I don't know what to make of that because I feel like not to... Not to be too crude about it, but when I think of Lula and Sailor's relationship, it's just constant sex. So yep. when you tell me you're going to go get into character with Nicolas Cage, I'm like, okay, what are exactly are you saying you did with Nicolas Cage here? Because <laughs> You could almost say she got into that character. Uh-huh. Speaking of that character, we're going to move on rapidly accelerating the Sailor's hey, relationship with her. As long as it's and they're having a good time, whatever. That is fair. I'm gonna if still they didn't, they, then okay. I'm gonna yeah, move. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna move from this spot. It's a beautiful thing. So okay, we can move on. Her character's relationship with Sailor. <laughs> when Sailor says he's a murderer, you pointed out that he's corrected that he's in fact manslaughter uh, verdict. It's interesting that you know she corrects him. It's manslaughter, and she's like, "Don't exaggerate." She's very playful about it, and then he's like, "I have nothing but immoral purposes for you." And she's like, oh, thank the Lord. So a lot of her like demeanor is very playful with his murder, his not murder, his manslaughter, excuse me. She generally doesn't take it very seriously or seem to have any fear of Sailor whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, she says that he hasn't disappointed her yet, but quote, it's more than I can say for the rest of the world. This feeling that the rest <laughs> of the world is a disappointment but in some way Sailor hasn't been. Yes. I think that's an interesting quote in line that I wish would have been explored more if her character had more depth. I don't know if there's really much to that line at the moment because I could try in my mind to imagine a backstory where probably she came from a family with a bit of money. I get the sense that her mother Marietta is well off and I get the sense that maybe she grew up in a world that was very sanitized and her mother was very overbearing and protective. So the outside world was very stale and regimented. But then she met Sailor and he was wild at heart and he was able to break her free from that and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But that's my headcanon. I don't think the movie really established that. It just, it could be what happened. And it probably is. I think there's enough to read inside of what the movie does establish to show a... Much smaller worldview than she is probably used to. Which uh, makes sense then is, why she would just run off with him the moment he's going to go do this giant road trip. Because what else has she got going on that's better? She's locked inside of her room for the most part with uh, individuals that she cannot fully trust for the amount of abuse that she's gone through inside the past. She has a mother figure that is overly daunting that looms over her that is also involved with and likely these people are involved with the family in general. Uh, individuals such as Santos coming around and uh, affecting things, if you will. So, yeah, no, it, it doesn't seem like it's great home life in uh, much area that she is able or willing to escape, mm -hmm. especially after 22 months, like not even like she's able to find an apartment for herself inside that. It's only years and years inside the future where she separated herself and has claimed herself alongside with her spawn. Nugget. Nugget. We're going to go with that. We're going to go with Nugget. His name's Nugget now. 
her name might be Nugget now. Uh-huh. Everyone's got a piece of Nugget in their heart. Yes. Probably should see a doctor about that part. Um, good attempt. Might want to work on that flow, friend. If the blood is flowing, it'll leave your body through a fart. That nugget in your heart. That nugget in your heart. Pierced your heart like a dart? I feel like you just really want to Shopping on Amazon going to fill that cart? There's more than one word rhymes to a lot of music. No, this one is only one word. It's only rhymes with art. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No. No, 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 no. We're good. We have variety in this film. We don't need whatever this is. Uh, there's a moment where, for whatever reason, we just kind of jump to a conversation where Sailor is talking to Lula at a bar, I believe, about some day in the past. We're not really given full context at the moment. Yeah. And he's just talking about this woman. He's, like, walking behind her on the staircase. And he sticks his hands between the woman's legs from behind her. Yep. She said, oh, baby, what a bad boy you are. Then Lulu, in real time repeats that line, oh, baby, what a bad boy you are. That's just what she said. That's just what she said. And then I just want to say this line. I hope I'm not quoted ever, like, out of context with this. It is a line from Wild at Heart. But Sailor then says, man, I had a boner with a capital O, which is, I think, one of the most iconic lines from the film. But owner? I didn't get that one. No, it doesn't make any sense. It's like the one, the one boner? The one that bones? What do you well? What do you because mean? Because O would be capitalized, and the only word that can be made out of that oneer, yep, be oneer, be oneer. I'm guessing it's just like the like. Oh my god! It's like, <laughs> oh my god! It died my penis. That's that's my guess. It did a thing. Or his his blood type O, and the blood that was rushing to his erect penis was the O. All these are appropriate theories. If you, listener, have any theories on this man's boner, please email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or tweet us, us at snakeeyedreams1, the numeral one, as in the oneer of the boner. You had a really long pause there trying to remember our tweets, our Twitter account. <laughs> um, he continues this story, and he's recounting how he pe- oh, how she peeled off her orange pants spread her legs real wide, and said, take a bite of peach, which makes Lulu laugh and reply, you more than sort of got what you came for. At which point, apparently this story has worked Lulu up to such an extent that she's like, uh-oh, maybe you better run me back to the hotel. You got me hotter than Georgia asphalt. For them to do another sex, yes. For them to do more sex scenes. Mm-hmm. And that that whole scene with that conversation about that woman, it was just there to... For an excuse for more of the sex scene, right? Like, that's uh, all that did? I would say that <laughs> the timing of it was important enough because there is enough question, like, on, like, what trouble has Sailor gotten yeah. himself into that would cause such ire, say, for example, from the mother or just any other experiences, like, within his past, especially with that little mystery of, like, the men being on fire, the father being on fire, that I, I, I think it's a red herring more than anything. Uh, mm-hmm. but a well-placed red herring. And it is also Lulu who says the line that the movie gets its name from, potentially. And she's at a very low point later in the film. She says to Sailor, this whole world's wild at heart and weird on top. I wish you'd sing me Love Me Tender. I wish I was somewhere over the rainbow. Now, apparently, originally, somewhere. Lynch's script... well over the sex. Oh. That's over the rainbow, the capital O. 
Anyway, originally Lynch's script didn't have the wild at heart line. The author mentioned to him, um, you left out the line and then, then he put it in. That's why it feels awkward. Isn't from, it? from what I can it tell, feels awkward, it does it? feel, it feels very like ham fisted in there. Yep. And it feels like I'm getting like something marked off on my bingo card because like you've got to have the name of the movie attention. in there. I think Laura Dern's delivery is really interesting. She said it was a with a very weird cadence. Yes, I like, I enjoy that. It's it's different. I don't even know how to imitate it. It's yes. a very particular way of reading the line, but it is it is very weird when it happens. Uh, when I was watching the special features, the author appeared a lot in it, and he apparently likes the movie a lot, which is a, a breath of fresh air. Not that I think <laughs> that you always have to please the author, but it's kind of cool to see an author who's just like. Yeah, it's different from the book, and it should be. The book already exists. The movie's different. I like the movie. And he just, as far as I know, he didn't have that much involvement poking and prodding. Lynch also yeah. wanted Final Cut, you know by this point, after Dune. So <laughs> I'm thinking the author probably just was like, oh, yeah, I like your movie. By the way, you didn't put this line in here that I thought you would put in there. And Lynch realized it wasn't in there and then added it. Uh, either as a concession or maybe because he genuinely thought it was a good line and just didn't realize he had left it out. Yeah. But you know who I'm not going to leave out? Me. <laughs> no, Lulu's relationship with her mother. I'm not going to leave the mother out. Oh, that's fair. So the mother is a whole can of worms. I just want to talk right now about Lula's relationship with her. All right. Right? What do you think of the relationship between Lula and her mom, Marietta? Just their relationship in a... In a, in a crystal ball you could gaze in, for example. I mean, I changed the crystal bar. Crystal I'm, bar? Yep. The crystal bar. I'd lower that crystal bar into this crystal ball, smash it, and then re-piece it together in order to make a birdcage because mm. this just feels like more so of a birdcage situation. She loves her sweet, sweet bird. She loves it so. But at the same time, if the sweet, sweet bird tries to fly away, uh, this woman will murder anything the sweet, sweet bird passes by. Uh, not directly, but with a gun. Mm. And then that gun will... The gun's name is Santos. I uh, feel like I feel like because Marietta's sort of I wouldn't call it a side plot, but her like B plot that's happening simultaneously. She's such an outlandish character that it does a lot of the handiwork of establishing the potential problems in their relationship. That it's weird for me when I hear Lula kind of defending her mom to some extent early on in the film. Yeah, when she's when Sailor brings it up that like, it's weird that you're in your twenties and your mom is so protective of you. She makes sure we keep us apart. Lula's like, Oh yeah, well maybe my mama just loves me too much. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if you understand what your mom is. I mean, she's not wrong in her assessment. It's yeah, just like, it's not just that though. <laughs> it's not, maybe she loves uh, sailor too much is also part of it. But oh after the six year time skip, we just get a, a heated phone call where, Surprise alert, the mom does not want Lula to be with Sailor. Who would have thought the heart wouldn't have changed? <laughs> and Lula pours water on her mother's photo. I mean, it, it could have been something like vodka, like a clear liquid, but it's probably water given the Wizard of Oz element. Yeah. But why would you do that? Again, real life. In real life, imagine you're having a heated relationship with someone who's like family, and you get off the phone call. Would you then pour a glass of water on a framed photo just randomly in your room? Okay. I, I think I th if we I apply hear where any you're coming from if we apply normal but, logic yeah my main argument is that the water was already in her hand it'd be weird if, if you went to go to the if faucet. she like specifically after the phone call went to the kitchen grabbed a glass 
filled with ice, poured some water, <laughs> stood there for five seconds, turned it off, walked over, and then splashed. That's okay. the closest thing in her hand to react to something that she dislikes. So she tosses water onto it. It knocks over the frame. She's it like, feels like done. it's definitely only happening for the Wizard of Oz reason. <laughs> like it, 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 it seems like that's it's the a very conclusion. it's a very weird situation. Like I understand people do things in anger sometimes, but I don't know if anyone listener. If you've ever poured water on a photograph after an argument, and don't have to tell us the details unless they're juicy. You don't have to tell us the details, but let us know. How many people have you murdered with water? Because uh, Lula maybe murdered her mom with water. I think I think at least the way I'm reading it, she didn't really kill her mom. Her mom's not really the witch, but like she killed her in her heart. Like her mother is dead to her now. Like she has faded from her life. Her control and possessiveness is gone. That is what I interpret happened. Yeah. But that was the moment in time in which her mother's control faded away and she broke free of that and she went with Sailor. It is weird then that that six-year gap, they kept in touch. So we don't know how often. Like, I like to what? imagine it was like a daily phone call. They were on good terms. Now Sailor's out. Immediately, we're done with her. We don't know that. We don't know that. We know that she's contacted her around the end of that period. So it might have just sucked a lot. She has a photo of her mother around, yeah. though. This might have just been the final straw. It is, again, it is weird, and it, this is where I can nitpick. I don't have an easy solution, but it is weird that with all of the conflict that we know about as a viewer, that means there was six years which Lula kept in contact with her mom and still had the photo out, and then the moment we get to see as a viewer, when conveniently you know he's coming back from the prison sentence, that was the exact moment that it happened. It feels like the movie... Like, Lula and her mom's relationship paused for mm. six years just so we could see the moment where this fallout happened. What, he wanted to just see the weird, awkward Thanksgiving dinners in between or something like I that? I don't know what the solution is. I just think it feels very conveniently paced and plotted. Yes, but we want to go to the dramatic points. But I yeah. do agree that specifically in the, the if actions... You, if you try to take any realism out of it, which, again, is generally a mistake. Yes. <laughs> but it's a tendency that one might have. Uh, now we're introducing a section that I just have in my notes listed as sex. Tell me more. Specifically under the character of, of, of uh, Lula. So Laura Dern broke her new, new, her no nudity clause for this film. In a 1990 interview, she was quoted as saying, I'm going to do the David Lynch voice again. Why? I'd never done nudity in a movie. Stop this. I've never sort of condoned it for myself. This is but David Lynch wanted it. I'm not David Lynch. David Lynch wanted it. And I was completely comfortable with it because the love story was so protected. There's never a moment where you feel anything is exploited. Do you realize how many like mixed signals go into yes. the brain? Yes. Just from this alone. Yes. You realize that you are the only one who will come out victorious in your efforts here. Like, as far as, like, something that's going to age in any way. And I want it now. Congratulations. Wow, wow. You stand upon your own mountain. As uh, my my empire of dirt. Anyway, uh, so, Professor, do you my agree? empire of dirt. Yeah, from Johnny Cash. His cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. Oh, I didn't know he did that. It's a great song. Great cover. Neat. Probably more music I'll never get to, but neat. Nine Inch Nails, I'm going to force you to listen to. I'm going to clockwork <laughs> orange you into a chair for some Nine Inch Nails one day. I look forward to sadness. <laughs> what if we just ended the pod there? 
Like, we just don't even talk about Bobby Peru. We don't talk about the rest of the movie. We just ended on the note of you having sadness. <laughs> Professor! Professor, stop! We're not done yet! <laughs> Professor, bring it back! <laughs> Professor! Okay, okay. Um, anyway, so she broke her no-nudity clause because she felt that the love story was so protected. She was so comfortable with it. There was never a moment where she felt it was exploitative. Just just to, you know, tick our boxes the way that this movie is ticking its boxes sometimes, do you feel that this movie was exploitative toward Laura Dern or any particular actor or character? Um, there was a questionable moment of what I would call, I'll, I'll just expand on it mm. now. Scene with Laura Dern as well as Willem Dafoe. Yes. Where they are... I know what scene you're talking yep, about. Very... Like, it's the only scene that they really have together is where Willem Dafoe literally, like, like invites himself into the hotel room to... Use the bathroom. Use the bathroom and then heavily grope. Yeah, this is where I, I think I think if someone her. called it a, a, a assault, I think that would be fair. That, no, it is assault. It is absolutely assault. He comes in to specifically... I think I think the hard part, and this is where I need to be very careful with my words, is that I do feel like her response does give mixed emotions in the way that someone can read her reaction. And not, at first, it's fear, for sure. Like, it was definitely, like, do not cross symbols that Willem Dafoe was going against. Like, absolutely going against boundaries. As the scene progressed, though, I do think it gets more murky as to what her reaction was to a mix of emotions that I don't think were entirely negative. There were, like, sexual emotions, sure, but at the end of the day, this is initiation of action without consent. Right. This is assault. Like, like I'm saying, I agree. I just think that what Lynch is doing is a mix of emotions that gets murky. And that still is something that doesn't entirely sit well with me myself. Right. That I, I would not begrudge anyone who feels that way. But there's also the aspect of almost like what, where the scene is and why this scene is. I understand, like my. I mean, I think it's that. the best scene in the movie. It is a to be honest. It is a scene that strikes a moment with this character, where it almost. In certain hands, and I'm not saying this in Lynch's hands, mm -hmm. it's just something I'm st I'm still trying to figure out for myself. But it can be a scene that's just trying to shorthand uh, a despicableness with a character, something for the audience to uh, despise or hate, mm -hmm. with the exploitation of using a female character's vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And especially with the overall themings of say for example abuse that has happened right with the character prior mm -hmm. it's something that if not handled well enough can cause a i don't know how to really put words to it not a good and <laughs> so do you, do you I, think I'm, lynch i'm, I'm lean i feel leaned into the not a good thing in my current viewing so you think lynch did not handle it well enough i don't think that lynch handled it well enough with it because again i it's one of the few points where i was sort of like broken from my immersion and it goes on for so long it still is a horrifying act but the amount of press this does and the lack of follow-up with mm -hmm. this moment it feels like again a gr near gross out moment with a well character. and this is where it's interesting because again i was very quick to say it's 
I think the best scene in the movie. Yes. So I, I do think it's going to elicit a lot of strong responses. I think that, like you said, it's a longer scene. It is very much drawing out a very specific mix of uncomfortable moods. It's definitely the most uncomfortable scene in the movie. Yes. It's whether or not we interpret that discomfort that we're feeling as in some way exploitative, in some way wrong mm-hmm. in terms of the messaging of the film. I recently was getting through a, a debate, kind of a discussion back and forth in a movie group I'm in uh, online. And the person I was talking to felt that they really never watched a movie and liked it less because they thought it was promoting a bad thing. They basically felt that morality should be neutral when it comes to films. So if a film mm-hmm. has people doing really bad things, okay, so what? It's fiction. And I understand that stance. It's not what I feel, but I do understand that stance. And when you're bringing up these things, it's what comes to my mind is like, how much do we weigh this as a concern and how much do we not? Uh, I, I just think that this scene explores the most interesting range of emotions. I think that both performers in the scene fen- do phenomenal work. I think this scene is doing so much legwork for Bobby Peru's character mm. that I, yeah, this is the scene that m- most grips me. It's the scene that I, if I were to like show someone a scene from this movie to show them like the best part of it, I would say this is the best part of the movie. Very well. As for me, I feel that just for the lack of follow-up and just almost as if like the lack of acknowledgement that sort of goes into the scene, mm-hmm. either from Bobby's end, well, you could say he does it silently, uh, or from Laura Dern's character. Yeah. It's something that if I were to take it out of the film, would I still feel a fair amount of the same things in the same scenes with the scummy behavior of Bobby? Or the overall vulnerabilities and the cautions and the concerns of Laura Dern. Yeah, I I think I would still feel the same thing with the scenes that follow. So I'm thinking to myself, what does this scene do for me? And unfortunately, I don't really have as much I'm gaining from Mm. the scene itself. I think the discomfort and the emotional effect that that has and the tension, it's the scene that had me the most gripped. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, it, it does a lot more than the, than the numerous other scenes in this movie where I didn't feel much of anything. Fair. Um, and, and again, with, if it does need, if it needs to be stated, like Willem Dafoe's character is a monster mm-hmm. and he is, he's clearly, I think Lynch portrays him as awful. So, you know, that person I was having that debate with feels that, and again, I think it's a valid stance one could take. I just don't share it. Feels that, yeah, morality doesn't necessarily belong in film that way. That you can have characters do bad things, go unpunished, and the movie can even promote it. It doesn't really matter to them. I do think, though, that Lynch is portraying Bobby Peru as a monster. I don't think this film is neutral. I think that it's clearly showing he's in the wrong. I feel that a lot of times those disagreements that people have about how a film handles its messaging, its tone... I think those are interesting conversations. So mm-hmm. rather than say as a blanket statement that, you know, it doesn't belong in film, I think that that's part of a subjective experience. And that's what I, one thing I like about film is that everyone has their own interpretations and their own views of what is okay and what is not okay there. And mm-hmm. there are certain cases where, yeah, I do think things cross a line. This did not cross a line for me, but uh, to those who say it did, um, uh, it's not, I, I don't begrudge it. It's a very uncomfortable scene. It, it genuinely uh-huh. is. Uh-huh. Originally, Wild at Heart featured more explicit erotic scenes between Sailor and Lula. In one of those cut scenes, Lula was going to have an orgasm related to Sailor uh, with a dream where she had of being ripped open by a wild animal. Ah. Another, we we, we kind of get something like that from... 
not sexy, yeah. mind you, but we get like the tear apart like an animal from a scene with, from Detective Johnny sitting inside the hotel room. I, but that's obviously portrayed as a wholly negative thing. It's a wholly negative like, thing. He I, dies. I, I'm wondering if there would have been like a This was meant to be sexy. It, it was meant to be sexy, yes. This, this is, that, yeah. And then another deleted hey, there's scene. there's one thing that I know about sexy, <laughs> it's all sexy is not for everyone. And another deleted scene would have had Lula lowering herself onto Sailor's face, saying, take a bite of Lula. I um I am glad these two are cut. I already said I think the sex scenes are too much. It's it's too redundant. Yeah. And I, I don't think that portraying her as more animalistic and more like carnal, I don't think that benefits her character. Okay. I think she's already like very obviously sexual as a person, but I think taking it to the point of ripped open by a wild animal and being turned on by that in a dream, it gets to be in a weird area where I just don't know if it fits with the rest of her. Do you prefer the dream in which it's like all these sort of like innocent Robins are flying through the air? No, I didn't or like that one. Or do you prefer one. to be ripped open like a beast? Okay, the ripped open reminds me more of a Nine Inch Nails song. There we go. You know, there's certain things involving Nine Inch Nails <laughs> that I can bring up at this point. If you knew what they sounded like. Uh, they, they, they probably sound like taller nails than eight inches. That's for me to know and you to find out one day. Oh. When... Lula was 15. This is in the movie now. When Lula was 15, her mother told her that she would start thinking about sex soon and to tell her before she did anything. This is where the movie gets into uncomfortable territory as Sailor is the one who brings up like, hey, I thought your uncle Pooch sexually assaulted you when you were 13. He just kind of casually brings it up. Thank you. And she says, well, that's true. The uncle Pooch wasn't really an uncle. He was a business partner of her daddy's. And her mother never knew about what happened, even though, as she said that, it then like cuts later to a clear scene of the mother noticing what happened. Yeah, no, and going after him after like she is in tears. It seems that she is bloody, and there's just like Uncle Pooch just sort of looking down. I I, I would say that between the realm of emotionless and disgust is on his face. It's it's as a he walks weird. Away. And then yeah, her, her also we know later that she like had him killed. Like, we see his car rolling down the hill and exploding. Well, we don't know that. It's, it's just very a, heavily implied. Closely around that time, his car flew down a cliffside, tumbled, and exploded. And also, way later in the movie, we have this flashback um, where it goes to the assault, which then goes into a scene where she is presumably being operated on in a hospital. Yep. It doesn't say for sure what's going on. Abortion? We reading that correct? Yep. Like, I do not know the apparatus of an abortion. I have not. That was an abortion. Yeah, that seemed like abortion That was an imagery. abortion. What's wild to me, I guess, is that there's such a casual way in which she and Sailor talk about Uncle Pooch and the situation that happened versus the violence of the imagery of the actual assault, seeing her bloody, um, knowing that this man was killed for this, and then the implication of the uh, abortion as well. Like, this is clearly a really, really heavy thing Yeah, that they just kind of casually bring up after sex. There's also, I, I would say that later on when it's revealed that she is pregnant. Yeah. But also, like, has a kid and is not sure how she feels about it. Yeah. I, I think that that's where some of this breaks through. I feel like she's compartmentalized mm-hmm. a lot of that pain. Yeah. To the point that... It's not something that on the surface level is going to break out, but there still is clearly some damage done. Yeah. It is just, it's just weird to me how much it's glossed over in that moment, you know, 
we see it visually as viewers, but imagine if we didn't have those cutscenes. Imagine if we just had their conversation. We would not grasp the full gravity of how bad that was. And I think that the complications of just like mental well being mm-hmm. with horrifying events is something that makes those moments stronger as far as like things that stand out, in my opinion. We also hear about and see situations involving Cousin Dell. Now, Sailor says that she never brought this story up. She never told him. She brought it up as a lesson about bad ideas is the way she framed this story. Yeah. So Cousin Dell was always fighting bad ideas. Yes. Some things we know about him. Uh, He loved Christmas. They used to call him Jingle Dell. He wanted Christmas to last all year long. Yep. He would scream out if his mama told him it was not Christmas right now. Yep. Big old red suit, big old shiny boots, the holly jolly spirit. And so at this point, I'm kind of thinking, okay, there's some sort of maybe uh, fixation in his mind. There might be a condition that he has. I don't quite know the situation, but I'm willing to believe like, yeah, that sounds like something that could exist in real life. You know, that sounds pretty believable. And then it just gets progressively more bizarre that not saying it can't happen, but it, it becomes more strange it adds on layers in which like there was 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 it socks or boots that have aliens so or gloves the, no the gloves. black rubber gloves black that are following gloves. him around yep because he is the one moving them right so uh-huh. he's moving them around so whenever he like is aware of it they're suddenly there around him and he believes that these are associated with the aliens who are the reason that christmas is being you know destroyed is because the aliens it was the aliens the all aliens along. will get to dell and make him do things. Rainfall is caused by the aliens. It gets to the point later where he's like constantly staying up all night to make sandwiches. Oh, and it, we're, we're, like for listeners that haven't like seen the film actively, we're talking like a full table of sandwiches. Yeah, like a huge like all of half sandwiches. And they are I not say. they are not peanut butter and banana sandwiches. It is like off like there it mountains of ham and when he is caught with this situation, he yells that he is preparing his lunch, his singular lunch, a table yeah. full of sandwiches. And like packed together like it, it's almost like someone made a tetris grid but forgot to take away the blocks of sandwiches. And then we find out that he has cockroaches in his underwear. Yep. Not because he just left them out and it's like one pair. No, he 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 wears them with the cockroaches in the underwear because we have a visual of him standing on the sidewalk and you can tell the cockroaches are in his pants by the way he moves. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the story ends and Lula says, it ain't so funny now. Dell disappeared. And it just, I, I wish it ended on that somber note. I wish it just ended on that somber note. But then Sailor has to butt in and say, it's too bad he couldn't visit that old Wizard of Oz and get some good advice. And I'm like, I shut up! Remind, I want to remind you that Wizard of Oz is an influence oh on this God. film as wizards. I wish it just would have ended like dramatically with like, it ain't so funny now. Dell disappeared. And like, then like linger with that bittersweet note and move on to the next scene. Do not bring Wizard of Oz into this to kill the but, mood. But the wizards, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Oh my this God. Is, it's it's thing. It's so thing. I <laughs> I don't know what to say about this scene. I don't know what to say about Cousin <laughs> Dell. It's again one of those things that's random in the scope of the movie. It does not really matter for the plot. It is I think one of those cases you could point to for Lynch and say he's just being weird for the sake of being weird. And I don't know if there's a better way to explain it. Like it's it's clearly meant to be funny. Like I, I read this as funny. I think it's supposed to be. Now, was I laughing more my first time years ago watching it than now? I feel like as time has gone on, I find 
cases like this where they're making fun of extreme like mental challenge and mental disability, I find that to be kind of in bad taste to some degree. Yeah. And it's like, this is reminding me of some of the things we've gone back and forth with when it comes to Nadine or Johnny Horn in the original show, where you're taking characters who are clearly not getting the mental help they need for the conditions that they have. Mm-hmm. And we're using their characters as butts of jokes. And I don't think you can read cousin Dell's inclusion in this movie as much more than a joke. I would say that retroactively, like a strange way that mm-hmm. you could read it as like influences of the red room before or around the time of the red room. We've seen like a sense of let's call it series of random events with those who have been afflicted mm-hmm. in the past. So I, I, I think that's the most positive reading. Do you like this scene? Reading. Um, it goes all in. And I think if it was, if it went in lightly, I would have more problems. Okay. But the sheer amount of like, what seems to be random events that are put together into one sort of like long scene. I have less of a problem with it, it. It's like that sense of like when something becomes so hyperbole that you aren't trying to associate it with anything else other than its own individual hyperbolic bit. Yeah. And, and when I, when I mentioned that scenes like this are not really moving the plot forward, I don't mean it as obviously a bad thing in the yeah. sense that I don't think every scene in a movie has to advance the plot a set amount. I think that a, a scene could exist and be great on its own for creating a mood, for for building the the world of the story, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think that, you know, between this scene and the scene at the bar with the man who quacks, it's it seems like this that established the strangeness and weirdness of the world around them. So when you hear quotes, you know, from Lula about how wild at heart everything is, I feel like it, it almost is justifying their worldview that the world is messed up. The disease of the pigeons is spreading around. I think it gives a feeling to the universe of wild at heart. That doesn't mean I think these scenes are perfect. That doesn't mean I think these scenes are necessarily even consistently good. And I could see someone finding these really funny, but I could also see someone finding them upsetting in, yeah. a, in a way for the way that they portray it. Yes. Um, because while this is an extreme case with, with cousin Dell, there are people who do, you know, live with certain conditions where they have preoccupations with paranoia like he does with the aliens. Yes. Or they live with preoccupations that can involve, you know, sexual deviation like with the cockroach situation. All these things together is so extreme that I do get what you're saying. Yes. It almost starts to feel less real. So you're able to disassociate from it and kind of just look at it as a weird surrealist art piece. Yes. But each of these individual components does exist in reality. They do. I don't know. I don't know what to say about this part, (laughs) Professor. I was doing a, was I doing an impersonation of the bat from, uh, what's that movie? Anastasia? Oh, I was thinking. Bartok. I think I was doing a Bartok the bat from Anastasia. Did Anastasia and Fern Gully come around the same time? No, I don't think maybe. You don't think maybe? I don't know. Yes, I don't know. Comical, overly animated bats is just a thing. Yeah, like Batman. He's comical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what else is comical? Marietta Fortune, the mom. This She's Mother's Day. a lot. etc. In the lightest of terms, a cartoon. Can I say something really wild at heart? At heart. 
This is this performer, Diane Ladd, is actually Laura Dern's mother in real life. Really? Yes. That is. This actually mother and daughter. That is surprising, honestly. That like, yes. She, no, she comes off there. <laughs> <laughs> if if you just told me that she was just another individual, I'd be like that makes sense to me enough. Uh, but no, she's someone that is very. We've used the word eccentric a lot, and I don't know what other way to describe a lot of Yeah, you said cartoony. That's really a good way to describe her. Yeah, no, she is someone who, in one scene, will be yowling and just crying out for her dear child. And in another scene, she's going to try to bang a man in the bathroom, but Borso is all sorts of wobbly. And in another scene, she is lipstick. What's weird about this performance is that it had a very polarizing effect on the critics at the time. So she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Didn't get it, but nominated that year for an Academy Award for it. But then for the Yoga Awards, I don't know what those are, but the Yoga Awards, she was awarded, I believe, Worst Foreign Casting because it was it was not an American uh, award ceremony. Man, I hear you have to bend over backwards to get those Yoga Awards. So... Uh, For, she's kind of one of those performances, uh, what Diane, Lid, Diane Ladd did here. Uh, kind of one of those performances where I could see it winning awards for being really good and also winning awards for being really bad. What do you think of it? What do you think of Diane Ladd's performance as she was directed to be this character? No, very fun. Very good. Very good? I, I love campy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know this at this point, Khalil. Yes. I love it when things go wild and people can have fun in their roles. And there's not been a point inside of this film that I feel that this person has lacked fun mm-hmm. whatsoever. So, no, I adored this overall position of this strange gremlin lady who decides, oh, no, yes, I'm going to do this. Oh, wait. Oh, no, I shouldn't do that. Oh, no, I'm going to keep rubbing this right here. Oh, man, I'm going to keep trying to move over. Oh, it's time for me to take action. Oh, it's time for me to no longer take action. She is, she is running at a speed that I can only wish to run at and just can admire from far away as she runs off to the new position far beyond me. (laughs) Somewhere over the rainbow. Over the rainbow. So David Lynch remembered that in her first scene, Diane Ladd was, quote, miles away from the text I'd written. She got the spirit of the scene perfectly, but she didn't recreate a single word. So I took her aside, and after that, we worked very well together. She was bad at sticking to the dialogue, but she really loved to be seized by an emotion and be carried away by it. It was quite something to contain all that energy. I don't know if that quote establishes whether or not he went with her ad-libbing or not, (laughs) but he does note that she did it. (laughs) It seems like there's a lot of energy going through. From the way that David Lynch has, like, treated, like, scenes in the past, I imagine that at least some ad-libbing was, like, accepted and good, and then we moved forward. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live by that headcanon. For as much of a loose canon as the actor appears to have been ad-libbing lines with all that creative energy, uh, her character is still, like, way more loose canon in, in the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's uh, written in all sorts of explosive ways. Even in her introduction, when we see the, the part at the beginning with Cape Fear, we don't really know her story, but she's just standing at the steps looking incredibly aroused by Nicolas Cage getting knifed and then him attacking. Well, like, I, did he even like no, successfully get knifed? No, 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 no. I'm saying the attempt at him. Like the act of someone trying to knife him and then him beating them up and manslaughtering them. Do she you, was super hot and bothered by that. Do you think that she is more hot and bothered by just like 
the physicality of what Taylor can do? Or is it something in which she is more so attracted to the idea that she caused this, that she has some sort form of power in hand? Yes. Okay. Both of them, yes. Very well. We find out later through her perspective what happened leading up to the incident. Yes. That later Sailor would be in jail for. Toilet time. Marietta, clearly drunk, goes to the bathroom stumbling around asking where Sailor is. And she's like, hey, how would you like to have sex with Lula's mama? Notably, she doesn't like call herself like, how did you like to have sex with me or Marietta? No, she specifically is like Lula's mama. Like, the, the act of the mama part is definitely part of the appeal for her. Yeah, some, and it looks there's like... There's some role-playing mentality. Go, I mean, it's not even a role. It's it's actual, but... It is the play. Um, <laughs> this this is part of it for her. But yes, uh, and meanwhile, Cage is reacting in a more passive manner, as if, like, this, mo- like, this character yeah. had, like, said something that would... He doesn't seem stunned by it. Like, like, it feels like he's okay with, like, being, like, toyed at, like, oh, ho, ho, isn't that cute? And it's like, uh-huh, yep, yep. Well, isn't this... Okay, fine. Yeah, I don't get the sense that he's at all interested. I get the sense that he's, like, not stunned by it, though. Like, I don't know if it's happened before where she's come on to him, but he's not surprised by this behavior from her. He's just like, oh, you might want to have some coffee and settle down, you know, maybe you need to relax a bit. I'm not really into this, you know? And then yeah. she pulls him into a bathroom stall. Yes. Also, side note, I really didn't like the edit during this part because it, it tells it in chunks, the story. And when it leaves out of fading to black when the bathroom stall part starts, it feels very abrupt to the point where there's like a very quick visual fade and some of the audio, I think it was Sailor's reply, like gets almost muffled as it like leaves the scene. There were just we some, get you out of there. there were some very quick fade outs and edits that I didn't like as transitions in here. And I'm not someone who normally is a stickler for editing, but I just, it feels kind of rushed. Okay. And this movie in general feels kind of rushed for me. All right. And there's even some background information that substantiates that. So maybe there's some bias in my mind because this film was like still being worked on the day before it went to con. And like, oh. like last, last minute. Oh, and because no. of the way the switcheroo happened with the project, he switched projects before it would have been that noir movie, you know? Uh-huh. And he basically had, I think like two months, maybe it was, to iron out these ideas, get the script ready. And he wrote the script in like a week and then he revised it. It just feels very slapdash. Like it feels very like, we got to get on the run, on the move, let's go. And a lot of it was improv. So I, I'm not super surprised to find some of the editing feeling not as considered. Okay. Because it does feel like the, some things are a little bit of an afterthought. It could be wrong, could be wrong. It's just my view. Could be, but I can also attribute, say, for example, uh, the more... I, I would say that this film doesn't really have many sort of slow moments. It get, gets things sort of like rolling and moving. And potentially, I think that even like accidentally edits like that could like yeah. help with kind of like keeping up. That's that fair. Pace. That's fair. So... When they're in the stall, she says that she just wants to kiss him goodbye because he knows too many things about Lula's mama. So, you know, Johnny told her that he used to work for Santos as a driver. Maybe one night he got too close to a fire. Mm-hmm. You know, so she says, so baby, you're going to burn. And there's this moment where she, she compares him to poop. And then <laughs> she says the S word in such a weird way that I don't even feel, as someone who does I don't swear, right? I, don't, I never swear in the pod. 
I, I feel comfortable saying, because I don't think she said it normally. I don't know how you felt. But the way it sounded to me, you think I'm going to let you hang out with a piece of S-H-I-T like you? Like she expels it out, but then the T is just T. <laughs> it's got it was sp- super weird. It's almost as if you got to spit in this person's face in the middle of like yeah, the insult. Yeah, maybe that's what I'll, I'll, I'll take your headcanon for that. That that makes sense. Take all my headcanon. Everything is serious. You, you need to have some coffee and get out of the bathroom stall. You sound like you're slurring your words there a little bit, Professor. <laughs> So, yeah, going back to your earlier question, yeah, she seems to be turned on by the idea, not only of the power dynamic, of the weird sort of mama, Lula, weird perversion angle, yeah, but also she's really interested in the idea of him dying. Uh So there's this weird mix of potential impulses behind her reaction. Yes. I I don't think it's just one thing. Most of the B-plot with Marietta throughout the film is her setting up the hits. Uh Uh-huh. Hits, plural, because originally it was going to be, you know, getting rid of Sailor. Yes. But then by involving Santos over the course of the movie, it also became getting rid of Johnny. Not her original intent. She definitely doesn't want it, but she doesn't have enough concern to really confront it and stop it when she knows it's possible. Well, I would say that that's why she ended up trying to seek out Johnny. Like, she does have that resolve. She just will not push it too far for one reason or another. Maybe it's just being familiar with the lifestyle. And fear Maybe of Santos, fear perhaps. Of Santos. But no, she does actively try. It's just that she will not admit in front of Santos this person matters to her. There's a note on here where I just wrote that I don't like the dialogue because uh, it was Johnny talking to Marietta. And it's Marietta who's, I think it's Marietta who says, I can't believe this. Johnny Farragut, who doesn't even trust his very own Marietta. I just can't imagine like a normal, like a normal conversation doing that. Like if I'm talking to you, I mean, I know your name's not really the professor, but if I said like, I I can't believe this, the professor who doesn't even trust his very own Khalil. I don't though. Like this is all true facts. I just, it's such a weird word. It feels like the only reason that dialogue is written that way is so we know his name. She needs to say Johnny Farragut to Johnny Farragut so we know he's Johnny Farragut because otherwise we'd lose track of this guy, to be totally honest. Maybe he's just like that cool and that important, you know, just like if I were to emphasize my name, the professor professing doubts onto Khalil. See, it sounds good. And he says he, he loves her, you know, it just brings out his ugly side, his jealous side. You know, he trusts her. It's fine. And then we get some snappy Twin Peaksy style music from Bottle of Menti at this part. Yep. Where Marietta does this thing with her hands where she she's like snarling, doing claw motions, advancing from the table. From the amount of times like we've gotten like uh, Twin Peaks vibes, as we call them. But specifically when Angelo Bottle of Menti is doing like this work. Yeah. I'm wondering if we're just attributing so much Twin Peaks when something could just be an Angelo Bottle of Menti sound. You know what I'm saying? Yes and no. Okay. Because I think that it's a very specific type of music that we're talking about because Twin Peaks has a lot of sounds in its soundtrack. We're talking about the very specific kind of snappy, like jazzy type of thing that we hear a lot in the Great Northern. And is that something more common, like inside of like Angel Blow Bonalamenti's complete I think records? I've, I think I've only seen... Or is it just specifically in that Twin's week sphere because we've had like two instances yeah. between the symphony and this well, that it's popped up bottle of menti mainly works with lynch um yes. i've seen i think only one other film with bottle of menti soundtrack uh-huh. and that was on accident um i was watching a movie it was a jane campion film 
called Holy Smoke. And in that movie, I remember feeling like the movie was kind of off and weird. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if it was the music or the mood, but I was like, this kind of reminds me of a David Lynch film in a weird way. <laughs> and that's when I found it out. So They're I don't just know. Two halves I, of the same I don't, person. They kind of are. I think that Lynch and Bottle Lamenti really are in sync in a lot of ways. So it is hard to separate where one ends and one begins. Yeah. Kind of like when we saw Sailor and Lula in bed as one's cat dog, you know? <laughs> it's the same kind of thing artistically here. Also, going back to that uh, cut scene with Lula, the whole idea of her having the dream about being ripped apart by a wild animal takes on new context when her mom also does the claw thing and the snarling thing. Yeah. With Johnny. Yeah. There's there's something you could do with that. They have similar tastes. They maybe do. <laughs> maybe they do. Throughout the movie, she's trying to communicate between Johnny and Santos, trying to arrange the, the killings. Uh, Santos, I don't got a lot to say about his character overall. He is just imposing. Okay. He, he does his job well as being menacing. There are some silly lines. Like when he first is talking to Marietta about this, he says, you want me to shoot Sailor in the brains with a gun. Like he just like savors every little part. Marietta's like, yeah. yeah he he savors drooling. it. He, it's almost as if he's trying to just educate as he just sort of like points out, no, no. He's very happy about right the idea of irreparable here. brain damage. Very right. happy about irreparable, irreparable brain damage brain damage and Santos wants to kill Johnny Farragut presumably because he sees her sees him as an obstacle in the way of getting closer to Marietta or maybe he just oh well actually it's probably less to do with Marietta and more the fact that Johnny knows too much Johnny knows too much he's part of the law yeah well is he law he's a detective is he a legal detective I'm pretty sure or is he just someone you call when you need to find out the dirt no, I'm pretty sure he's a detective, my dude. Oh. Like, I'm pretty sure that he's just above the level. Oh. Well, then that also makes sense to kill him because he knows too much. Why the heck would you just, like, invite this man? It's like, yes, I'm, I'm a detective, quotation mark. Well, he's you someone you do that you get the dirt on people. You know, you have, it's like a private but underground well, then detective. Why is he so opposed to Santos? Like, if he's willing to do the dark deeds. Because why... still, you want to avoid the darker deeds. <laughs> Just because he's doing dirty deeds done cheap doesn't mean he wants the darker deed done to him. He knows Santos is dangerous. <laughs> you don't go sticking your nose in someone else's beehive. I mean, this is the type of movie where you would stick your business into someone else's beehive. In multiple ways. <laughs> uh, we don't get much of Mr. Reindeer, but we, we usually see him around topless women. Yep, from time to time. He's he, on he's his toilet with his phone. Seemingly very rich. It seems like he uses the two silver dollar thing. Company. Yeah. Two silver dollars throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. I, again, I just. Oh, which, by the way, is a fun system because apparently the silver dollar is like an assignment with a letter. So yeah. each like agent gets like a silver dollar that's unique. Like, well, not unique as in it's different, but it's just uniquely. Here's a silver dollar. Do the job. This is a two silver dollar job. They couldn't just stick with one. Because well, there's two people you're killing. The two people killing, and there's even like a comment, just like it's like, wait, why is this like a two silver dollar sort of like deal? Like, well, why are we putting so yeah. much into this? Well, I thought it was because it was killing Johnny and killing Sailor, so there's two silver dollars. You're putting in two hits. One yeah. is for Juana, right, and another one Bobby uh -huh. Peru basically took. Uh huh. So I assume there's two coins for two kills, and that is two a, heads, and that's a nice rating. It is. It still is a fun little bit of a question as far as like. What, what's going to happen now that one of the jobs very horribly failed? 
I think one thing you and I will agree with overall, despite our disagreements, uh, amicable disagreements, I might add, uh, is that uh, we like Marietta wiping, rubbing the red lipstick over her face. Oh, God, that was... First it starts with her wrists, right? Later her face. And it's almost like a jump scare the way it's presented because it's suddenly there. Um, the first time I watched it was more effective than rewatching it, but it's still like a really good moment. It is something that you communicating don't really mood. see. It communicates a very, very strong, specific mood. It's, it communicates a very big rising anticipation more than anything because she just keeps going. She just keeps going. Mm-hmm. It's like, why is she still going? And you almost become a little bit nervous as she, like, completes her whole entire body as she stumbles over in her little witch shoes. Yeah. Which, by the way, Wizard of Oz. What? What? I think you're reaching a bit there, Professor. I, I think I'm the wizard. And reaching over to strangle people is Grace Zabriskie as Juana. With Jerry Horn. I'm just going to call him Jerry Horn and look if I get a name for him. It's just Jerry, Jerry Horn. Horn is just going to be next Jerry to her. Horn, what he does in the meantime when it's just like Ben on the screen. Grace Zabriskie, you know, we know her Sarah Palmer. Uh, the role she's playing here is quite a bit different from what we were used to with Sarah Palmer, right? Absolutely. So to the point where you didn't even recognize her. No. Um, Zabriskie has stated in the, the special features, like it was an interview where she said that uh, this is this is definitely one of the weirder, darker things she's ever done and probably one of the weirder, darker roles she's ever seen. Um, the character doesn't have a lot of moments, but what is there is um, every disturbing trope. <laughs> like it's, it's a lot of what this movie does where it's violence, but portrayed in a sexual way. Yes. It's like she's turned on by the idea of execution. And her weird, like, cronies that are along with the ride, they seem perpetually on drugs. Yes. Of, of like, the worst, hardest kind. And everything about her just seems um, awful to be around. It's one of those, like, areas in which, like, I kind of, like, look towards David Lynch's work where he commonly uses characters that are disabled, mm-hmm. but then um, uses it in a fashion that is what I would have... What doesn't feel like a sense of representation, but more so to invoke a certain mood with the character and with right. how they move and how they go about. Which, by the way, we mentioned Jerry Horn and we also uh, mentioned her. What about the third individual that was with them? Like, like I said, it, she had, a trio. She has a, another crony. I don't remember his name. It's on my notes somewhere here. Yeah, Reggie. Man with, like, a heavy smile. Yeah, I think Reggie's fine. Yeah, Reggie. I, I don't got that much to say about him or Jerry Horn. They, they're just there to me. They're henchmen. I feel like Reggie gives a little bit more presence. Just yes, because he's, he's has lines. He has lines. <laughs> he has more than two lines. It yeah. helps. It does it help. It does help. I, I think it's fine. I find, again, I, I've said this before, there's a lot of characters who are there to progress the storyline. They're, they're quirky in their moments. But this movie has a lot of characters who are sexual and violent. And after a certain point, when you're looking at all of these characters who are these kind of grimy associations, yeah. between Marietta being the most prominent character, Bobby Peru being very, very memorable, but then you have Santos, you have Mr. Reindeer, you have Juana here, you have Reggie, you have Jerry Horn. To some degree, you have um, Rossellini's character, right? You just have all these characters that just start to blur together in my mind a little bit where I don't find a lot of them particularly that effective because there's just so much saturating this movie. And there's nothing much more to them than these scenes that they just do violence in. So I I don't have a particularly strong feeling about Juana. Um, this scene was very, very controversial in the film. It's probably the scene that had a lot of edits done to it. Oh, really? Yeah. How come? Because it disturbed people. This is when a lot of the walkouts happened. 
This was one of the wa- walkout this, this scenes. This is a big walkout scene, yeah. Okay. Pretty confident on that. So, hmm. I find that interesting, but mostly because of how much we ended up covering the scene later, which that's where I yeah, assumed the walkout. I found were. I found it in my notes here. Originally, after Johnny is killed by Juana and Henchman, there was a sex scene afterward oh. involving Juana and Reggie. Oh. Test audiences found the scene to be disturbing, and fifty percent of the audience walked out. Okay, so that gives you more of a number ratio from earlier. It gives that me was more a fifty percent of the audience leaving situation. Yeah. It, it, it seems like... And those are people who probably knew what David Lynch likes to do in movies. What David Lynch likes to do with movies. And maybe, potentially, maybe there was a bit too much into the sexual department and didn't really pace yeah, itself Yeah, noticing a lot well. of this content being cut is sex. Yep. Or sex-related. For what reason was this potentially going to be given an X rating? For whatever probably, reason. Yeah, right? Probably the copious amounts of sex. I just feel like for all of these bit players in the background... None of them have the staying power that Marietta and Bobby Peru have. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to remember Juana. I don't know if you will, but it's just, I, I feel like I have very little interest in them aside from just pro- progressing part of the story. I feel like there's too many characters here that don't really add much. I'm going to remember Juana as much as I would remember a character in a comic book for just the... Use of aesthetics, but again, I don't feel that that is really all that helpful for anyone, mm-hmm. really, other than just being aesthetically different. And I don't know, like I, I, I find the idea of disabled assassins to be an interesting idea that almost was heavily distracted by the rest of the film. Yeah. Uh, six years later in the time skip, Marietta is still around. She hasn't been like executed. We don't. Th- I don't think we. Well, we do know she's with Santos still because Santos goes with Marietta to go visit Lula after everything's kind of happened, right? And Marietta is just kind of a ragged mess mm-hmm. at this point in time. Yep. Well, actually, am I am I right or am I wrong? Correct me. Was Santos seen after the six years, or was that when Lula was just first? Yeah, I think that might have been... Santos disappeared. Yeah, I think... So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no, Santos, like... So we don't know. At one point, it's just like, hey, I'm Santos. I'm here in your life. So not and I'm only... here to help. After, like, Johnny gets killed, he's just like, hey, I'm around the corner. Hey, don't worry. I wouldn't do anything against you. Later in the film, he's like, hey, I'm Santos. Give me a hug. It's good to see you. Come here, Peanut, you're not peanut when I say it, but here you go. Here's a big old hug. And then there's no Santos. It's kind of interesting then that not only Mr. Reindeer, but also Santos is alive at the end. And if we take Marietta to just be erased from the daughter's life, she's still around. The three big, like, antagonists outside of Bobby Peru are still Uh, out there. Again, like the ending of the film, at first that thought came to mind. But then I stopped caring. That's fair. Because it was too fun of an ending. That's fine. And then she just fades away. Just fades away. Goodbye. It, water killed her from a portrait and not on her. She just cried miserably as she was very sad about, like, potentially losing her daughter, which, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, she's still horrible for what she's done because she's hired multiple hitmen over the course of, But we're of, more like, sympathetic to her life. than we are Bobby Peru. There's... Like, yeah. in, a, in a degree. I mean, like, they're both awful (laughs) yes i do agree that a pin is going to be less worrisome than driving my fist into a nail 
I agree to that statement. Yeah. Still don't I don't look on. forward to that statement. That's fair. Yeah, I know how you feel about needles, so I, I can imagine. Yeah. So, Bobby Peru. Bobby I, Peru. I don't think he's as memorable. This is not trying to not trying to put Willem Dafoe down. Love Willem Dafoe. One of my favorite actors. This is not as memorable to me as like Frank Booth. But it's also because screen time wise, Bobby Peru doesn't appear until quite a bit later into the movie. And he only has so many scenes to establish himself. Yes. He does not have the attention that Dennis Hopper's Frank Booth had. He's the mystery assassin that we were almost led away from by one of the characters that was familiar and in Sailor's he Life. He also feels less intense and less of a threat than I think Frank Booth. If there was a war between Bobby Peru and Frank Booth, I think Frank would have Bobby Peru dead in 24 hours. Probably. I, 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 not, I not, to say that, not to say that means that Bobby Peru is worse. I'm just saying on the scale, on the scale of things. No, I give him two. You give him two days? Hours. Two hours, okay. <laughs> two seconds. Um, <laughs> he takes a big old whiff of his ass breathing apparatus. What? Oh. He pulls it out of his ass. Oh, he I forgot into that. It. I forgot that. And that would be very confusing people who skipped the last uh, blue, <laughs> the blue velvet pod. Um, you come for this content. Welcome so, in. So according to David Lynch... Uh, having Willem Dafoe play Bobby Peru was a terrific experience. Lynch continues, he is so controlled, so precise. There is not a single wasted emotion. I think that the false teeth helped him with his conception of the character. From the moment he put those teeth in, he talks a little differently. He discovers a certain kind of smile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, teeth are effective. Teeth are very effective. There's, there's that shot of him with like the pantyhose over his head. And he's like grinning and like laughing. Yeah, with someone super good. With someone so well dressed and also rotting from the inside. Yes. Again, I, I'm more okay with like the weird imagery being associated with someone who's just like awful. Yes. And deranged in this kind of way than I am the stuff that happens with like characters who, going back to like that uh, that cousin Dell. Characters who I kind of feel more like, oh, I can't really help that. Bob, mm. Bobby Peru can stop at any given moment. Bobby, Bob, Peru. Bobby Peru is is actively doing all these things. <laughs> uh, we get a great introduction to him. The we have after they get to Big Tuna, we have Sailor and Lula at this table, and there's uh -huh. a bunch of guys around. We we meet uh, Spool Jack Nance's. Oh no, it's Bo's Spool Jack Nance's character. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about the dog. My dog oh, barks some. Yeah. Mentally, you picture my dog, but I never told you the type of dog which I have. <laughs> which that's just Perhaps clever. Perhaps you might like, even picture Toto from The Wizard of Oz. You got a little bit less clever there. Yeah, I had to shoehorn that in, didn't but you? But regardless, like I, I love the idea of just like someone just toying with yeah. like the assumptions that the mind can lead to. That mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, there's also a moment where there's a bunch of topless women who are coming out giggling and Which by the way there is a group of larger women that are dressed up in a very sexualized manner. And for the amount of women that are dressed up in a sexualized manner to just sort of like add to a scene and just do as they yeah. do. These uh, women, they seem older as yeah. well, uh, are just still inside the scene, but still treated very much the same way, I find, as any of the other characters that were given the same treatment, if you will, of just sudden nudity. And you d seem to I disagree. disagree. I think what's going on this is all interpretation. Okay. I think what's going on is he's using the fact that they are larger women okay. and the fact that you don't usually see naked larger women in a movie for shock value. I think he is using this to be weird and startling. Hmm. I don't think this is being used as like, 
some sort of like body acceptance or something. I don't think it's being used as body acceptance. I, I but don't I'm think it's being it's, done neutrally either. I, I think that's the nudity that just suddenly comes into frame is being used potentially for shock value, but as much shock value as any other time that we just suddenly see nudity. This man's on the toilet, there's suddenly nudity. Lynch. This man is at, at the dining table, there's suddenly nudity. We're sitting inside the middle of the nowhere. Oh man, there's people having fun. They're nude. I think what Lynch enjoys doing a lot of times, this is my own opinion, I think what Lynch okay. enjoys doing is in his television and films showing people whose physicality oftentimes looks different from what people are expecting to see in a film or movie okay. or TV show. Sometimes it's also mentalities, but a lot of times it's physicalities, whether uh -huh. it's a one-armed man or a very short person. Yeah. Right? Or a very tall person. Yeah. I feel like he oftentimes wants to incorporate these weird voices, even if it's artificial, like editing the man to sound like the duck, the quacking high pitch voice okay. or the helium thing with, with, with uh, booth. I feel like he likes taking things that people would expect and twisting them into something weird or abnormal. Did you... And I feel like that's what he's doing here is the fact that they are larger than you would expect to see for nude women in a film. I think that's what he's doing. Hmm. And I, I mean, it'd be, I, I'd love to think you're right, and it's not at all for shock value. That that feels gross to again, me I think to that, do that. Again, to emphasize, I think it's as shock value as any other point of nudity in this. See, and I think that the shock value of Lula being naked is not meant to be the same kind. Okay. Or I, 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 yeah. Anyway, I, I, I think we're just gonna have to disagree to disagree on that one. That's okay. Uh huh. I, I do think that this scene does set up the kind of environment that they're in, and by proxy, the environment Bobby Peru is in, because right next door in these like little area, these hotel areas, there's like they're shooting pornographic films next yes. door. So there's this sort of attitude and area of kind of this grimy things that have been kind of kicked to the exterior of civilization mm. that maybe a bit underground maybe a bit subversive. Okay. So when Bobby Proust shows up kind of in this context, we also find out that he was at this massacre, basically, where a lot of people died, including kids, women, old people. He was involved in that. Fun. We get this sort of full picture, I think, of a man who his friends and his associates live in this sort of grimier underground world, uh -huh. and his past includes traumatic violence which I think sets up maybe where he gets some of his dispositions. Mm. Not to give Bobby Peru any excuses, no. but I think he is partly a product of that environment that he comes from. He is someone that, if I'm not remembering the lines correctly, is someone that has traveled around. I don't know how far. I don't know how big the place of Big Tune yeah. is, especially since he's sort of like in this sort of like hotel-like area that is... Kind of like this little shared space. Well, it's also implied heavily he was in jail. Yeah. Because they, they can't shake that institution odor. Yeah. Is what someone says about him after he's gone. Uh -huh. Which, again, he has served time, which then parallels Sailor. Yes. He is like what Sailor could become, right? He is this worst form. He has a history of violence, history of being in prison. He has this sort of sexuality to him. But imagine that all gone wrong. <laughs> like, imagine that all gone a worse possible route. Yes. So I, I think in that way, effectively set up. Yes. Also, I, I have to point this out. So when he's poured his glass of Jack that he wants, his alcohol, Bobby Peru says with a smile, speaking of Jack, one-eyed Jack's yearning to go a-peeping in a seafood store. And I just had a moment of epiphany, like, were we never, were we just too, like, pure and innocent-minded? 
Are we just little little babes in the woods like Leland apparently was with demons? <laughs> Were we just so unaware that we never picked up on One-Eyed Jack being a euphemism for a penis? Because when it said One-Eyed Jack, I'm thinking of the slit, the eye, going a peepin' in a seafood store, fishy, usually associated with you know, vagina. Jack, you know Jack and Jack Off? And- I was just thinking like One-Eyed Jack's now being what it is in Twin Peaks makes a whole lot more sense. <laughs> if it's literally penis jack. <laughs> the place. Or just penis. Again, yeah. jack off. Yeah. So, Hello, welcome to penis. Penis just was like the like the t- test I, name. I just never. To how like, like yeah. um, everything with It wasn't until he mentioned the context of the seafood store and the way he reacted to it. He was clearly saying something dirty. So it's like dirty. Something's peeping in a seafood. Oh. Oh. Um, unless again, maybe, maybe it's not okay. Maybe it's just his, his eye is peeping. He just wants to see it, mm-hmm. but it's inside. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just thinking it maybe. No, no. Keep going down this rabbit hole. Let's see how far we go. Look, I, I'm just saying <laughs> that maybe we never thought of it and we now know. <laughs> Speaking of penises, Bobby Best Peru. Segway. We won. We did it, folks. Bobby Peru it. says he needs to pee. <laughs> yep. The other the other thing he uses that for. Yeah. And uh, he asks Lula if he can use her head. He clarifies he means the toilet. Obviously, he's not going to yep. pee on her head. That'd be mm-hmm. silly. Mm-hmm. By the way, Willem Dafoe supposedly really did pee during this scene. Like in the toilet, that was actually him peeing. Good for his bowels. Yeah, he barely really had to pee at that moment, and he did. Bobby Peru smells the puke. That we had, we, we never talked about it, but previously Sailor and Lula had been talking about it. And he, he pretty quick on his feet, like figures out she's probably pregnant. Like he puts it together very fast. Yeah. And he then starts talking um, about how he finds her attractive, but in very objectifying ways, like how he f- likes a woman's body like hers. He likes a woman with an attitude like hers. He speculates like the way she has sex. He He's very clearly like coming on to her. And... You know, at the very, to look at even the most charitably right now, he is alone with a woman that he knows is in a relationship with someone else who he just met, who he clearly has more power over, probably has a weapon on him knowing Bobby Peru. This does not look good from any angle. Nope. Even at the start. Right. Nope. So just, just again, clarifying that. And when she tells him to get out, he even asks, am I scaring you? But... Then he proceeds to check and see if she's wet. And he interprets the way that she backs away slowly as a sign that she wants him, which is uh, not how consent works. Uh-huh. We need to talk to Bobby Peru about how that works. No. If he didn't have his head no, shotgun. No, off. this is Monopoly. Go straight to jail. Go straight. To, do not pass go. Mm-hmm. Do not collect $200. Yep, d- jail. You think Bobby Peru is a get out of jail free card? I did keep him back. Depends on how connected he is to Santos and Mr. Reindeer, I, I think. I think so. Pretty sure he's pretty connected. He probably has a get-out-of-jail-free card, though. Probably has at probably least a silver does. dollar. Well, he got out before, so. Yeah. He threatens to tear her heart out if she doesn't say that she wants him to have sex with her. Of course, he uses a more vulgar F word here, but, you know. To either whisper it out loud or say it out loud. He keeps repeating it, pressuring her, groping her, and... The thing that, again, I was kind of trying to say earlier, and, I, and I'm just trying to be careful with my words here because I don't want to be misconstrued, she does take a really long time 
to do any sort of response here. And when she finally does give in to his demand and like say what he wants her to say, he then loudly pulls, he pulls away and loudly says in a joking voice, someday I will, but I got to get going. And then he leaves, which again, I, I know that this is a scene of like, it's really bad. Obviously if this is real, very bad, very legal, go to jail, not like $200. I also think the punchline is very funny. Mm. I think the whole like someday I will, but I got to get going is, is very funny for how much that is built up and you do not expect it to go to a punchline. Yeah. So in the sort of dark, dark comedy that is, I do find that funny. Very well. I don't know if you did. I'm still reeling at the moment at the thought of it all. Are you going fishing with that reel? No. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'm going just to stare at the water. Bobby Peru is fishing for trouble in Lobo. So uh, goes to goes with Sailor to a bar. They drink. Bobby Peru brings up lots this, like I, gods. Lots. Like there's about a dozen bottles between the both of them. And Bobby Peru says there's a store in Lobo that keeps about five k in their safe. It's a two man job. They'll split the cash evenly. And again, no one's gonna get hurt. Like he's got guns in the trunk, but no one's gonna get hurt. And Sailor's like, yeah, as long as it goes smoothly, I will do it. He's probably thinking that you know Lula has a baby on the way. Yeah. If she keeps it, they're gonna need more money. You can't sustain them forever. That, They're that, on the run. Yeah, that's the main sort of like press give and tell. It's and not so a good they, reason it, to do crime like this. It's not a good reason to do crime, but it's going to put him in a corner. It, I, I believe why he's doing it. I, I find it believable yes. that he's doing it. Because, um, he, he, again, he doesn't want to hurt anyone. He's not out there for violence. Yes. In his mind, I think stealing the 5K is morally acceptable to what his situation is. Murder is not. Yes. He's not willing to kill for this. Which... Later on, when we do go into the scene when there is the thieving going on, that's one of the things that he is even pressing into Bobby mm-hmm. prior to the blood. Yeah, and Sailor says, as long as it goes smoothly, it'll be fine. And then it does not go smoothly at all. Nope. It proceeds to not go smoothly. Multiple ways. So, uh, Perdita Durango is the driver that immediately alerts Sailor because why would she even be here? Um, that's suspicious. And they go over to their... Things very quickly escalate because when the money is being grabbed, Bobby Peru hisses out a say cheese and blasts <laughs> one of the guys with his shotgun, which Sailor then responds dramatically by reaching out, Bobby, you know, doing a, a Nicholas Cage reaction you would want him to do. Uh, and Thank then you. just violence ensues and officers outside and um, Perdita's trying to, you know, figure out what to do in that situation. And you end up with like several people either wounded, possibly dead. Like you mentioned, the guy got his hand off, not face off. That's later in the film history, <laughs> but hand off, which then goes to the dog. There's a lot of dogs in this movie. What do we do with it? Who knows? The black dog runs at night. Who knows? And Bobby Peru, I'm assuming on purpose, blasts his head off with a shotgun. I, I assume that's like, I'm out. Like, he knows he's beat. Oh, I thought that that was just a stumble while he was getting shot down. Maybe it's open to interpretation. Yeah, it it seemed more accidental. It happened very quick. It did. It Uh, did very much because he was being riddled with bullets left and right. That looks... It it would make Scarface sort of, like, look in shame. So I think what happened is he knew he was going out, and I think Bobby Peru wanted to go out with a bang. Heads will roll. No, go on. Go on. No, that's it. That's actually all I had. You just have the two. Just have the two. Two's all I needed. You know what happened more than twice? Um, sex. References to the Wizard of Oz. And sex. So, looking at this film as a whole, looking at the totality of it. Don't, after I said, like, how much sex, do not say look at this as a whole. 
Do not do that. That is the wrong. Let us insert ourselves Stop into the yourself, situation, please. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna thank you. No, nah. Proceed. After sailors in prison, we get a view of him in a crystal ball. We have references to the Wizard of Oz throughout the movie, with the Wicked Witch laughter being compared. Or the visuals of the Wicked Witch as the mom. The witch boots, the red heels, or click three times. You, you just the take, Wizard of Oz said multiple times. You take me right over the rainbow. There's so much. Glenda. They mention Emerald City. They Glenda talk about the makes an appearance. The yellow brick road. There's ruby red slippers. She even clicks the ruby red heels. Yeah, I, I already said that one. I'm gonna say it again. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking David Lynch. You like Wizard of Oz, don't you, Mr. Lynch? I think David Lynch uh, likes Wizard of Oz, and he was there, and he was there, and he was there. There's, there's, it, it is thick. Like, if you licked this film, it would taste like Wizard of Oz. It, it easily has over 15 references to Wizard of Oz. I accounted them for a while, and I gave up. <laughs> but there, I accounted, it was like about a dozen, and then I kept doing them. Okay. I have expressed negative opinions on certain parts of this film. Yeah. You have expressed mostly more positive than I have. That makes sense given our ratings. Yeah. If I had to give you one criticism, one criticism of this movie, my biggest complaint, it is how the Wizard of Oz is used. There is a point at which you can have influence. You can riff off of something. You can make it very connected to something. Follow the Yellow Brick Road, homie. If it had half of the references it would still be heavy-handed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. bludgeoning you. And I find it to be eye-roll-inducing after the first, like, four. Because even if we'd never seen any David Lynch films before, let's say this is our first one. We did not know the guy likes Wizard of Oz. I had yeah. never prepped you on that. Yeah. You would get the idea very quick. Probably, yeah. It's Again, it's when you're literally seeing the witch on the road and you're seeing the red heels, it's like... It's so much. And I don't think it's effective. The more you do it, the less effective it is. There's some people in this world, though, Khalil, that it's okay. Because when someone says, like, you know when they bring over, like, the uh, cheese for your salad? When you go yeah. to a fancy restaurant and they grind it and say, yeah. just say when? They, they never say when. They never do. That's what David Lynch some did people, here. Some people still are stuck to the restaurant this day, I am certain. You because like cheese on your when. salad, don't you, Lynch? <laughs> it's it's so much. We're still waiting for Lynch to say when to this day. Oh, man. <laughs> I just, I'm not, I don't know. How do you feel? Do you? It's thick. Like when I that's say it's, why it's good. When I say it's bad because it's thick. I, you get where I'm coming from. I get where you're coming from, but also where you're coming from is why I like it. You have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that's 90% peanut butter. I love that. No, you don't You don't understand. This isn't just a joke. I love that. I'd do like a good 70-30. I like a peanut butter sandwich. I don't need math. I need food. I need to be- <laughs> Then eat, Professor. In. Nobody's stopping you. I'm not stopping myself. So if I want to take the whole jar, stuff a piece of bread in it, and then give it a dollop of jelly, I'm going to call it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you cannot stop me. I'd still say it's a bad peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I'm going to lavish myself. Now, here's the thing. This is all, like the sandwich example, subjective. 
I think it's a bad sandwich because it's not my taste. And I am, That's all I'm going to say it is. I'm not going to pretend objectivity here. And I'm going to say that it's better because I'm right. Oh, well, that's fair. <laughs> that's completely fair. <laughs> so aside from Wizard of Oz, which I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on like... We're just kind of taking it as a given. Do we need to explain why it's this in there? This is just Wizard of Oz. Like it's, it's, just, it's Wizard of Oz for the sake of Wizard of Oz. It's not like a small thing to analyze. It just is the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> We're off to see the heart, I guess the there's wonderful this, wild of heart. There's this idea that instead of there being a home to return to, it's the feelings of love in the relationship, right? Like that's yeah. the closest thing to home that they can have is security with their love for Sailor and Lula. There's no place to go back to. There's no, especially not family, considering the way that her mom is acting. Absolutely. And instead of like stepping from reality to a literal dream world of, of Oz, it is the dream world of this nonsense scape that is Wild at Heart's plot line. Yes. You know, a world where Bobby Peru can exist. Defoe gods. Defoe. Defoe gods. So that's my understanding of why it's in the movie. I'm moving on to Fire and Destruction next. Brilliant. The opening font looks very similar to Fire Walk With Me's font. I got nothing to say about that. I just wanted to make that point. Next up, there's a lot of smoking in this movie. And I know what you're thinking. It's 1990, Khalil. Now, mind you, now, mind you, smoking cigarette. Smoking cigarette of tobacco. Yes, we're not just being redundant with fire. No. Lula started stealing cigarettes from her mom in sixth grade, meaning she's about 11 or 12 when she started smoking. Sailor says he started smoking when he was age four. And by this point, his mother had already died of lung cancer. That's pretty extreme. It is. There's a lot of smoking and fire references as transitions. What do you make of the amount of fire, flames, smoking? What do you think of that motif? It's something in which they are heavily throwing themselves into vices and situations that they know is likely not best for them, but it is also the way that they've lived for so long. This mm-hmm. is just simply life to them. So, so this I, is an anti-smoking PSA? Oh, by God's no. <laughs> violence associated with that. There's a lot of violence. When Lula's trying to find someone to listen to the radio, she becomes upset because all she can find when she's going through the radio and tuning it is violence. People having sex with corpses. The environment being destroyed. Pain all around her in the world. Mm-hmm. She screams that she needs music this instant, to which point Sailor finds some power mad and they do flips over the car. But the point is... Violence. Violence. Car accidents. Oh, by the way, I mentioned one near the end, another car accident happened involving the actor uh, Nicholas Love, who plays Malcolm Sloan. Did you notice Malcolm Sloan? There's an accident very near the end. I think it's like after the six-year time skip, I think, when Lula's like going to the prison, I want to say. But there's a car accident that happens that she has to try to dodge with her kid, like go around it. That's Malcolm Sloan right there. That's Malcolm Sloan. Which is fascinating, and I'll use that word. Because of Malcolm Sloan. Because the fact that David Lynch, by this point, was barely involved in Twin Peaks. There is a questionable nature on whether or not, say, for example, how much... We can just say this is just a name being used again, but first and last name. Being oh well, no, used it's again. not used in the movie. Oh, sorry. It's just the actor. I'm just saying it is Malcolm Sloan. The oh, same God. way I said oh, Jerry so Horn. Okay. Sorry if so I was no, confusing. No, no, it's canon to me now. Malcolm okay, Sloan. It is canonically this is the Malcolm ending Sloan. of Malcolm Sloan. He's, he's such a after minor. He died in the season two. Yeah, super minor character, but uh, yeah, it was just interesting seeing that actor reappear <laughs> in the situation. And then the last like big theme I noticed was just the Oedipal vibes. Like, not full-on direct Oedipus complex, but a lot of, like, 
things to psychoanalyze. So could psychosexual you analyze some some examples here. Well, the obvious Marietta with Sailor, you know, emphasis on you want to f word Lula's mama, mm -hmm. really putting emphasis on mama. Mm -hmm. uh, Lula at one point says to Sailor, "You remind me of my daddy." You know, there's. Those things mainly, mainly those things. Okay. But just a lot of the weird, like mother relationship with sailor. I suppose it doesn't click in my head as much because mm. that's not something that is being attempted or attained by the younger generation towards the older. Instead, this is a older woman who is not blood related. Yeah. That is just trying to sneak into someone's pants. Yeah, but using the idea of it being the mother as an emphasis. That's what's weird about it. And it's not, and yes, I, I say edible mommy. vibes. Hello. Well, it's, it's one thing to have Come like, see mommy. it's one thing to try to tout that, but to say mm. Lula's mommy. It's specifically trying to appeal to the fact like, wouldn't it be really sick and twisted if you had sex with your girlfriend's mom? Oh yeah, no, there's an absolute yeah. taboo to it, but I'm curious if it's just the general nature yeah. of taboo. Yeah. And again, Bonger. I would say it's, it's it's vibes rather than the actual one-to-one -one Oedipus complex. <laughs> Just, you know, Oedipus complex adjacent, you know? In the in the in the field of. Adjacent. Oedipal adjacent. So on the review aggregate <laughs> website, Rotten Tomatoes, you may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. The film has an approval rating of 67% based on 52 reviews with a weighted average of 6.5 out of 10. The site's consensus reading, one of director David Lynch's more uneven efforts, Wild at Heart is held together by his distinctive sensibilities and compelling work from Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. Uh, Metacritic, in largely agreement, has a weighted score of 52 out of 100, 18 critics calling it mixed or average reviews total. So again, a lot of the consensus online and among critics is... Five out of 10, six out of 10, pretty much down the middle of the road. Yeah. In his review for the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert, we're going to keep talking about Roger Ebert a lot. Roger Ebert pops he's up. He's a consistent up. element here. He, he's, he, was, he was a big face. He was like came the to. film critic that yes. people knew. But also he did have a lot of historically interesting Lynch responses. A lot of the best Lynch criticism, or at least a lot of the most famous Lynch criticism, came from Ebert. So he wrote, Lynch is a good director, yes. If he ever goes ahead and makes a film about what's really on his mind, instead of hiding behind sophomoric humor and the cop-out of parody, he may realize the early promise of his eraser head. But he likes the box office prizes that go with his pop satires, so he makes dishonest movies like this one. Now, this criticism I find interesting. I don't agree with all of it. I think to call this movie dishonest, I don't agree. I think Lynch means what he's doing. Yeah. I think Lynch freaking loves the Wizard of Oz, Elvis, and Marilyn Monroe, and he just wanted to throw it on a screen. Okay. But when he calls it soft, mor soft moronic humor, when he calls it kind of a cop-out of a parody, pop satires, I agree insofar that I personally do like the films where he doesn't do those things more. And I think that, because I don't remember off the top of my head, and I'll have to look it up. I'll have to look it up. When we get to Mulholland Drive, what Ebert said about Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And, and to some extent, Lost Highway as well. I don't know if Roger Ebert uh, reviewed Inland Empire. He he might have. I'll have to look into that as well. <laughs> but I feel like the the next Lynch films we get to, again, my viewing, you may or may not agree. I feel like Lynch does talk more about what's really on his mind, as Ebert said. He doesn't use the veneer of referencing The Wizard of Oz as a device for the story. And I think it's better for that. Okay. So I am again curious what Ebert thought of the later movies. 
What did you think of Ebert's criticism, Joe, in, in general for this movie? This is definitely not a fit for him for the general film. Uh, for what he does come off as what I assume to be that sophomoric humor, mm-hmm. I just thoroughly enjoy whenever a film just indulges in those fun bits of nature and just so happens that a lot of points where I find people can let loose with humor is within that perceived realm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I feel like there's a lot that, just didn't click for him, and I'm thankful it didn't. You're thankful it didn't? I'm th- I'm thankful it didn't click for him because Why? I... Hmm? Why? Because overall, I think that if it went more into his own taste, that did delve away from that sophomore humor, I'd probably have less fun. I, oh, I, I, so you're not you're not glad that he didn't like it. You're glad that it was something he didn't like. Yes. I know that sounds like the same thing, no, maybe, no, it, but... It, it is, it's a good distinction. I thought you were I happy that you. he didn't enjoy the film. Like, good for him. I'm glad he didn't like it. I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful Roger Ebert spent two hours he didn't God enjoy. damn it, Roger <laughs> Ebert. I was always a Siskel fan. Oh, know? no. In his review for Sight and Sound <laughs> magazine, Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote... Perhaps the major problem is that despite Cage and Dern's best efforts, Lynch is ultimately interested only in iconography, not characters at all. When it comes to images of evil, corruption, derangement, raw passion, and mutilation, roughly in that order, he adds in parenthesis, Wild at Heart is a veritable cornucopia. Mm-hmm. So the way I'm reading this criticism is that his characters are less characters and more images or icons. They're not really fleshed out. They're just kind of impressions. All right. I mostly agree with this. I think that this is a good assessment in general, yes. I think that Sailor is the one who breaks out the most as a character, as having more, I I don't know, more development, more depth. I think that a lot of these characters have more depth. Marietta also, Marietta also, I would say. But a lot of the characters, I would say, yeah, they're they're one-dimensional. They're tropes. Bobby Peru is a very well-done one-dimensional trope. I think that there is a lot of shorthand that's being used, but I do find it to be effective, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed towards, I do still find the, many of the characters from Blue Velvet being the most recent example in my brain to be very one-dimensional. That's completely valid. Despite these initial reviews, Wild at Heart came to be viewed favorably in subsequent years. It has been ranked 47th best film of the 1990s in an IndieWire Critics poll, the 26th greatest film of the same period in the Complex poll, and the 53rd best in Rolling Stones poll. So it averages decent in a lot of polls for 90s films, not like number one, not even top 10, but like cracking around the 50 to 25 range. Yet somehow, like Harry and the Hendersons is more of a priority to get on a streaming service than I would rather watch Harry and the Hendersons than (laughs) this movie. Although I would say this movie's better than Harry and the Hendersons, yes. Thank you. I would say it's better. I'm I'm sorry that you want a worse time instead. I just say that I would rather go for (laughs) Harry and the Hendersons most days of the week. It's just a personal thing there, okay? To leave me alone. As far as awards, it did win some things, but mostly just a few nominations. Uh, Independent Spirit Awards, uh, Best Cinematography went to Frederick Elms. There's some nominations for Diane Ladd and Willem Dafoe for their acting. Yoga Awards, I mentioned before, Worst Foreign Casting for Diane Ladd, Worst Foreign Director for David Lynch. MTV Video Music Awards gave the best video from a film to Chris Isaac, Wicked Game, because the music video for that was also involved with the film. Oh. Nominations from the American Film Institute include AFI's Years, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, and AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions. Mm. It didn't make it into either, but AFI considered it in the laughs and passions category. (laughs) 
the laughs and passes. Well, categories, are, I should say, two separate. Categories, okay. I yeah. was about to say, not like not the, one. the like the idea of a singular category that's just laughs and passion, passion, passion. What is that passion? A sex? It just feels, is it it just just feels weird to just say like, yes, here's the passion category. Only those that are passionate may make it through. Like this, I'm more interested in that category than I think I am laughs because it's so weird. <laughs> it's such a vague term. <laughs> like if someone's passionate about murdering no, someone, is that a passion? No, no, no. It clearly that's not passionate. No, it's just, it just seems like a category that's very he- like obviously awards like people giving in their ideals there's a heavy amount of subjectiveness to it this feels like a new level of just like here's an award for passion here you go (laughs) you did it you were passionate about what you did there's a lot of work that goes into this sort of stuff all all sorts of films how do you just award one's passion i don't share your feelings but i do find them funny to laugh at thank you you're welcome they had to nominate a hundred films based on passion, and I I just think that's funny. It's a weird concept. Imagine being in the room where like you're trying to figure out, okay, which one hundred films are passionate? No, yeah, yeah, the yeah. most, of yeah, course, the most, yeah. objectively. Yeah. Uh, so overall thoughts on the film? We've we've said a passionate. lot. Passionate, passionate. Have I chipped away at your eight out of ten? Really good, strong love of this film. I wouldn't say love. Really liking. Do you love this? Really film? Really enjoying. Yeah. Have you changed any of your feelings as we've talked? Have I boldened your any of your feelings even? Made you feel stronger in opposition to me? You've expanded my overall perspective, and overall I look forward to viewing it with those things in mind. But so far, no, the score that, by your standards, has not moved. So my opinion also hasn't changed, which tells me this pod was a waste of our time. Was that was that the goal? was that the goal of yes, any point of our that pod? That was the goal of this podcast was so that we could change each other's minds on our opinions. Well, screw that! I'm done. That's, that's go that's, find yourself a different professor. That's the only reason we ever did this. No, you start here, from scratch. I'm done with that. I'm not going to play this game. We're here to change our opinions on movies. Listeners, if you want to take my place, go ahead and just email us at snakeourdreams at gmail dot com <laughs> or snakeourdreams one the numeral one as in one Khalil. So I have two wonderful and strange questions of the week for you. Uh, yep, with jokes aside. Please proceed. How has Wild at Heart shaped your understanding of David Lynch as an autist? It gave me hope. (laughs) It gave me hope that Uh, I wasn't going to just walk back into something that just felt so samey. Legitimately, I was worried with this film that you were not going to like it because it was going to bludgeon you with Wizard of Oz and it's going to be a lot of the same ideas again. It's and I'm like, he's not going to like this. He's not going to like but this. It's a lot the of the same. It's a lot of the same, but it's given new flavor because of the sheer tone of it. Ooh. Like, there's been a lot, lot of David Lynch that we've seen up till now, but for the most part, I, th- I believe that at this point, like, other than short films, but the larger films, yeah. you have a protagonist that is more so wandering through a mythical or mystical situation. And it has to overall process it with a few things sprinkled in along the way that's going to help him. In this case, yeah, he uses a lot of his overall items such as fire, Wizard of Oz, and so Mm -hmm. on. But he does it in a way that is far more compelling to me as a viewer 
on what I enjoy from films such as this. And especially, maybe I'm very much putting it on a high regard because of how much more of a fresh breath of air this is from yeah. anything like Elephant Man or anything like that. Yeah, it's hard to separate those things sometimes. It is fun. And I like fun. You know... I may still feel this is a six out of 10 for me, but I'm glad you enjoyed this film. I'm glad you had Thank a fun you. time with it. I am curious if you end up like revisiting it like a year or two from now. I'm going to hate it. I don't think you'll hate it. I think you'll like it. I'm just uh, curious if your opinion will change much. I'm going to put my, I'm going to put my bet in. I don't believe it's going to be right, but at the same time, it's fun to see. You think you're going to hate it? I don't think so. But oh. I want to bet on it. You're going to, Bet against yourself? It's like betting on a random horse in a race, like pointing your finger at the newspaper and just saying, that sounds awful. that's the path. No, you It's go... exciting. What uh, are you talking about? Uh, Leave it you, up to chance. You vote for the dark horse in the race. Oh, I don't know if it's a dark. I'm pointing at a random one. It might be a light horse. I have a second wonderful and strange question of the week for you. Proceed. This is a spicy one. I feel like you'll have a pretty quick answer, though, based on how you've responded. Delicious. Do you think it was worth it? For David Lynch to leave Twin Peaks to make Wild at Heart. Because we know that at this time, he was very absent during the making of season two. And a large part of that was because he was working on Wild at Heart. I'm going to say something pretty controversial. I'm Ooh, sure. yes. I don't care whether or not David Lynch is behind Twin Peaks. Ooh, he yes. Did, he was involved. I'm thankful for him to add spice, spice. to it from his own roles, but... At the end of the day, I'm not sticking with Twin Peaks because it's just David Lynch. There's so many creative minds that go into it, and some of my favorite things were from decisions of people who were present there when David Lynch was not. He still made some amazing things. I still adore the final episode. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I find Twin Peaks to be Twin Peaks more than I do David Lynch's work. <laughs> and the, the, that's going to be the interesting thing going into the return because that seems to be heavily David Lynch from, from what, everything from, that we've been told. Unless you find out, said, I've totally been like BSing you. Like, to me. What if like it turns out like, oh yeah, David Lynch didn't direct any of the episodes of the return. <laughs> I respect David Lynch as a creator. Yeah. And I'm thankful that we're going through these bits and films. But I say that let him chase his passions, let it be guide him. I'd much rather mm -hmm. him find things that he enjoys more than trying to stick him into a hypothetical world. That was an excellent answer, a spicy answer to my spicy, if I dare say, excellent question. Cheers. Cheers. Next up, do we know what we're doing next? Do we know what our podcast is doing next time? I believe that we still have a few more special features. Ooh. Ooh, to look into, spicy. to top that off at the very least, to make sure that we have everything covered before we continue. A little, little bit of a Twin Peaks treat. We are a Twin Peaks logcast, after all, hypothetically speaking. You like special features, don't you, Mr. Lynch? Why, yes, Khalil, I certainly do like special features. I find that they blow wind through my trees, if you know what I'm saying. What am I saying? <laughs> Nicholas Cage, my best friend next to me. Do you like special features? Nah, 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 nah. No, that is not Elvis. What the hell is that? 